Thanks for listening to the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You can contact the show at twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast and through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Good evening. I am warning you right now, if you touch my drums, I will stab you in the neck with a knife. Ain't a fucking. Ain't a fucking. Mom! Lower it. I'm not gonna lower it. I have to do this now. I don't want you to play it, but lower it. We get straight now? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. Next. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Yeah. Well, you know that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners who know who this gentleman is that's sitting across from me right now, I am at his uh, abode, and it's probably not in the place that you think it is. A lot of you folks probably think I'm sitting somewhere in Manhattan right yeah. now, <laughs> but yeah. that is not the case. Oh, man. Yeah. Far from it, right? <laughs> far the, I'm closer to Manhattan than you are, probably man, <laughs> where I live. That's for sure. Definitely in uh, surroundings. For sure. Absolutely. And I'm not going to out you, man. I'm not going to tell these people where you live. We're not uh, going to have yeah. people beating your door down, man. No, man, the police station is like right. <laughs> it's this cute little A-frame house. It doesn't look like anything, but. That's like, the police station? I can go, hey, help. <laughs> you know, right there. <laughs> well, I think they pick my mulberries in the morning or something. Uh, hey, man, don't put up with that crap. <laughs> well, you know, we got to stay in, you know, stay in good. There you go. You know. For our listeners, sitting across from me is the drummer from Interpol, Mr. Sam Fogarino. Howdy. Man, Sam, it is an absolute pleasure uh, for you to invite me over to your house, and I'm just going to call it rural Georgia. Rural Georgia. Yep, good old North Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how you do down this way, right, man? It it is. That's exactly. Well, I'm just going to stay the night, man. I won't be in your hair very long. There's a bathroom right there. (laughs) There is. I just used it. Yeah. You're good. Uh, You know, just knock for coffee. Hey, you, hey, man! You don't you don't have to tell me twice. Like I said, I've pounded coffee all the way over here, man, from my house. I appreciate it. But in all seriousness, with where, with where you're at here, you are within what we'll call striking distance of Atlanta. You can get to where you need to go. I totally. I I mean, I know I have a, a beaten path to the airport. Oh, I'm sure you, you know. do. I am sure you do. I bet you know down to the minute how long it takes it you is, to get from here It is, and I still don't leave on time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, Sam, our show, we have what I like to call select guests here. We don't interview people every week. And right. so we do things a little bit differently on this show than, than a lot of other drumming podcasts. We don't go really deep into, like, bio and background. However... I do want to get a little bit of bio, a little bit of background just for context. Sure. For, for everybody else that's out there, the rest of our listeners, look, Sam has been interviewed several times in print and on different podcasts. He's talked about his bio and his background in, in depth in some of those. So if you want to know more, feel free to do a Google search and you'll be able to pick him, pick his brain or find some, some information about him out there. We're going to hit the highlights of it and we're going to talk about drums and we're going to talk about touring and life and Interpol and all that good stuff. Sounds good. Fogarino. That's a nice, strong Italian <laughs> name. <laughs> right? Yeah. From Philadelphia. Yes. 
West Philadelphia, I hear. Indeed. I've been out that way before a couple times. Just no re- really quickly, I actually, I've been to Philadelphia several times. I've played in Philadelphia se- several times. I stay it in West Philadelphia uh, a couple of times out at the Adams Mark Hotel out on City Line Avenue, oh, I think is what it is. Yeah. That's probably not too far from where you grew uh, up. Oh, it's maybe two and a half miles. Yeah. I mean, that, that wasn't my immediate neighborhood, but that's where I'm from. That's right. the part of Philadelphia that I'm from. Yeah. Like, I know at, that part. Adams Park, there was. Okay, the hospital there is mm-hmm. where I was born. Mm-hmm. No, I'm lying. It's not where I was born. It's where <laughs> I had childhood pneumonia and okay. was was there hospitalized for two weeks. But it was right there, and the the AB the the ABC affiliate, the news is right there. Okay, and then there's a it gets kind of a suburban. It pushes out of the suburbs, but not in that um, you know prefab way. It was more of an old school colonial type, you know, federal brick, you know, yeah. row homes, and uh, it's just kind of gorgeous out there. And then it then it goes out into affluent mainline suburban Philly, which is, it, um, it's like one percenters live in I that gotcha. part. You know, and it's like Dupont, yeah, Dupont rich. That's what we're talking. It's like it's kind of where I come from, like. You know, Will Smith, the whole TV show, you know, that, that, where he shot, okay, see, everybody gives me shit, (laughs) oh, you're from West Philly, born and raised, da-da-da, and it's just like, yeah, and actually where they shot the playground scene is Overbrook High, where he went with my older friend, he's about two years older than me, and he went to school with this gentleman, Stephen Powers, who um, has become... Well, he, he was a graffiti writer at the time, but has become way more of a modern artist. Is uh, Espo, and his that tag has uh, outside of the the um, you know um, tagging on on big walls. You know he's he's branded himself in and not in in a, in a in a similar way to Shepard Ferry, not as widespread, but as interesting. They went to high school together. I'm going to do a shout out to one of our favorite Philadelphia drummers and Atlanta resident, Lil John Roberts. Uh, he's from Philadelphia. He plays with Janet Jackson. Oh he, man, I was okay. He's hold, been on our show before. Hold up, hold up. <laughs> okay. I was just talking about Janet Jackson yeah. last night for a, a, a separate interview, uh-huh. and um, we're just raving about a certain period of her music. Which is, you know, I, and uh, funny enough, a drummer was interviewing me. It wasn't a dr- drum specific. Uh, it's actually for the press release of the next Interpol record. Um, but as soon as we were talking about R&B for a second, and he, considering my age, he was like, what about the 80s? And I was like, not so much, but like, save for like Janet Jackson's control. Uh-huh. Rhythmically, uh, whoa, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, w- what did they eat for breakfast? Mm-hmm. I mean, this gentleman from Philly plays with Janet Jackson. I I imagine. Well, first of all, he'd have to have some serious chops to play those grooves with, you know, mm-hmm. um, the intention needed. And then it's got to <laughs> be fun once you're past that. That's got to be fun as all. It, oh man, let me tell you, he we had him on the show. He was uh, man probably in the first six months of our existence that we had him on the show. 
And he and I have got a lot of mutual friends, other people that we've played mutually together with, right. you know. And hearing his stories about how he got that gig, he's been on that gig for 20, a little over 20 years, maybe like 22, 23 oh, years. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah. yeah, so he's he's well steeped. He's in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's so I imagine in. he's made a lot of that stuff his own as well. Yeah, he tells this great story, man, about how they rehearse. I, I know you'll find this fascinating because it's so far removed from anything that I've ever done, and pro probably your, yourself also. Oh, yeah. Because, man, these rehearsals that he has with Janet are these incredibly overblown things to where what they do is simultaneously they'll have the band in one rehearsal studio, so like an SIR type thing, right? Yep, yep. And in the other studio say it's across the hall or down the down the way a little bit they'll have a simultaneous kind of a choreography dance rehearsal with an entire troupe and he tells me that what they do is when they're in these serious rehearsal phases before a tour yeah. they'll start running through these different songs that they've done for 20 years right yeah but what he will do is just occasionally and unknowingly play some kind of a fill they record it they send those tracks over for choreography to work on. And what ends up happening, man, is the choreographers will find this really subjective drum fill. You know, just a drum fill that he just played, you know, just like we all do off the top of our head. Yeah, yeah, of course. And now that becomes a part of the arrangement, dude. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense. So he does make them his own to an extent. To an extent, yeah. You know, because also, these shows are so highly choreographed that everything is done, of course, with sequences. Oh, sure, well. sure. It has right. to be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's how you do that kind of production. That's, it's almost to the point, I, I want, I'm oversimplifying it when I say this, but it's almost to the point where he said that it's kind of like when the show starts, you hit the space bar, and then it, you <laughs> it just, just go, goes. It just goes, <laughs> you yeah. Know, for the you're rest so of the time. dialed, you're just so guided. Yeah. But, you know, that's the genre, too. There would be something missing if you didn't have i mean like rock music there's i think you run the fine line of sounding too much like your record and not enough mm -hmm. there's that middle ground to people want to feel a live experience but still they they want to know that they're still hearing that same song that they love at home right you know and so with big production like that you know you got to keep some of that element and the, how are you going to do it? It has to be playback. Yeah. It, he also, he talks about it as well, having to to cop these feels and these different types of grooves that were, of course, never meant to be played on drums, on acoustic drum no. set player, right? They were programmed, right. like you said, by Lewis and Jimmy. Yeah. Jim. And so it's the type thing that, that he has to be pretty creative at times to be able to make that happen simply from the standpoint to keep the integrity of the to keep song. Keep the integrity of the song, yeah. Yeah. If people dancing will know. Yeah. You know? So now we flash back to Philly yeah. for a minute. It's my understanding you were there till like your early teens. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was a little segmented it, from birth to like 15. Uh huh. And then I returned from 18 to like just before 20. Gotcha. Now, in those early teen years, had you started playing drums at that time? I always had sticks. And my, my, my parents bought me a, a little drum kit that wasn't exactly a toy drum kit but it wasn't pro it was kind of in the middle yeah and um it's i didn't take to it like to where i knew i was going to be playing this instrument but there they noticed a natural proclivity, proclivity. i'll cut that out yeah yeah 
I had a natural tendency, you know yeah. what I mean? And um, it wasn't until I was about 12 and um, a band happened to form in my basement. And I was like, oh, I'll play the drums. You have the basement, Sam. Okay, cool. My mom didn't mind. Yeah. And so um, I learned how to play the drums while learning how to be in a band all at the same time. Yeah, on the job training, it's... All, and everybody get was... much better than that. The, the guitar... Two guitar players and the bass player were at just a higher enough level to keep things moving. Uh huh. So they had a little bit more of a of a uh, melodic or like chordal kind of vocabulary than I did rhythmically, but that that was good because then we weren't just if they couldn't play a chord progression, I wouldn't have nothing to fumble through. Right. You know what I mean. So it was kind of sure. cool. And then the next thing you know, we were we wrote three songs together, and that's all we ever played. <laughs> What you guys weren't doing any covers? We started out doing covers. What of kind course. of covers? Because oh, you, you and you and I, man, are of the same generation. Because right. we, we have similar stories. I can probably tell you about my my same stories as well. Right. Like I, I know this is not yeah. a unique scenario uh-huh. at all. Um, so there was some who, uh-huh. like um, auda- the audacity to try my generation. <laughs> yeah. Right. It sounded like you know the young man, like the boy version. Sure. How like kids would translate something a little too off the cuff and complex yeah you know, like um talk about like uh, a good track based uh, those those takes were you know they're felt in the oh. moment you know so fluid no sequences there my oh, friend. man yeah no. so you know that kind of thing some stones you know sympathy for the devil and uh-huh. um maybe a kink song here and there so there's a little bit of repertoire and then nobody was interested it was kind of fun but then immediately boring yeah, and we just started writing these, you know, rudimentary kind of um, somewhere in between, like you know, um, that kind of rootsy rock and roll and punk rock. Yeah, it was kind of in that middle middle vein, power pop, if you will. Okay, you know, more more leaning towards like wanting to be cheap trick. Uh huh. You know, but still, there's a lot of there's a lot of that punk punk. I mean, punk rockers love Cheap Trick. Steve Albini loves Cheap Trick, mm-hmm. which is it's kind of funny when you think about the the man who hates melody the most out of any producer <laughs> recording engineer loves one of the most melodic rock bands that ever right. existed, like melodic and harmonious at the same time. Uh, who yeah. would have thought? <laughs> guys, it, Steve, they can sing. Yeah. Wow. You like them, and they can sing. Now. I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. This, I know for a fact, this had to be happening in the early and mid 80s. Okay. How in the world did you escape the hard rock hair metal phase? Or did you? No, I know. I escaped it. Uh I did, but like, okay, is it less embarrassing to look like a member of Duran Duran? Good point. I mean, so it was a different. We, we, you know, as young men, we went to different women's stores to shop. Mm-hmm. It's really, and, um, you know, it's always at that, you know, it's that age where there's rivalry for no reason. And then what would happen with me is that, because I still liked some hair metal. I didn't care for, you know, the the fashion statement, but I still liked some songs. It's, rock, it's just rock music, right? With a different, just a different approach. And so I'd get along with these guys. Well, I had a rapport, you know, and they, you know, I was the kid they weren't supposed to like, and yeah. I was supposed to hate them. 
And then when you realize what you're talking about is the same fucking thing. Well, I'll tell you this also. Another thing I think that gets glossed over all the time, man, when you start talking about the hard rock and the metal type stuff from the 80s, a lot of those cats could play. They could flat out play. They were really good. I had, had, Mm -hmm. okay, I, I would call it the privilege to, and this is a pure, this is Philadelphia, mm-hmm. pure hair metal like history here. I, can, can I guess who it is? Is it Cinderella? You said it, my friend. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Jeff Labar, uh-huh. who was definitely an incredible guitar player, played, I don't know what, if he was just doing it to play, but he found these kids in my neighborhood that were the best musicians. Of that of that time, this is like the early, very early '80s, and Cinderella was about to happen. Like mm-hmm. they were going to get signed. He knew that he'd be touring the world. Still wanted to rock out with these kids, and he was about five years older than that, than than they were. And they would just play like, not not just covers, but deep like, rush off of like, you know, flip side of um, uh. That's the B side of permanent waves, natural science, you know, and just, you know, the longest, most obscure Zeppelin song. You know, they'd really yeah. roll deep into this. And, um, I, you know, it's like, what, what is he, you know, he's going to be a rock star. And then sure enough, you know, Cinderella was like the pretty much biggest thing for a minute. They were huge. And pop music. And uh, another funny thing is my cousin went to high school with him. <laughs> yeah, and said he was cool. She said he was a cool dude all four years. She didn't, wasn't tight with him, but like just good, good guy in yeah. high school. Like uh, everybody liked him. He was kind of unassuming. They're still somewhat active. It's my understanding, you know, that they still play a little bit. But of course, you know, again, it's 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 sort of like they're victim of their own time. Oh, oh man. Yeah, Uh, uh, of of course. Now, Sam, also, while we're still in Philadelphia and you were learning your craft, learn how to play. Did you ever take any type of lessons from anybody? Well, just no, not formally. There was um, a drummer by the name of David Romani, who was about my age. And I met him when I was about 11 and I went to his house, met him through a friend who took me over there. And this 11 year old kid was playing uh, good times, bad times with one foot. Mm-hmm. He was copying the whole thing and he's 11 years old. And um, all at once I was like, I'll, I don't want to drum anymore because <laughs> I, there's no way. And he's like my age it was crushing. But then it was like, ah, oh. He's a nice guy. I'm just going to hang around him and maybe it'll rub off or something. And he was really patient with me. And he, I would sit there and watch him practice and he'd take a break and say, go ahead and sit behind the kit. Just go nuts. And then he'd come down and he goes, this is what you're doing wrong. You're so tense, my friend. And he would say, if you want to play like me, you gotta, first thing is just loosen up and breathe. And um, we kind of... When I formed my little band around that time, um, I kind of lost contact with the kid. I kind of got my own world and, you know, it was doing my own thing. But I never forgot, like, first of all, like, it's amazing. The the cruelty of existence is technically this guy, 
I mean, I don't know if he had Neil Peart's creativity, but he was playing really complicated music at before he was uh, even a teenager. Even yeah. a yeah, uh, while he's a preteen. If that's not that's that's some kind of talent, you know. Maybe he didn't have an original, a creative side, but like put a chart in front of him, and he nails it, like precision. You know, so maybe at the time he could have became. I mean, I don't know what ever happened to this gentleman. I mean, he could have became a really incredible, creatively uh, incredible, <laughs> creatively incredible drummer. Uh-huh. But even before that, like his his ability to, ability to emulate was almost like autistic. It was so precise. Well, and he he it was a very he was like my first real inspiration. Well, regardless of, of like, you know, any type of autism, one of the most important things he, he related to you was the, hey, if you're going to play this and do this right, you've got to relax. Relax. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's huge, man. It was you. It was, it was very insightful, and he was a big boy. Yeah. He was an overweight kid. Uh-huh. And beyond that drum kit, like, he had the power of his weight, but then he had the finesse of a, a feather. Right. And it was really just to what I could see him was close proximity. And it was just like having one of those heavyweights in front of you. It's funny, isn't it? Sometimes that when someone is that much, it's that important to you, so to speak, and they probably don't realize it. Right. It, no. Isn't that amazing? No. They, and it was, you know, kids, you know, you don't really know how to articulate what you're feeling. Uh-huh. You don't really understand it. You know, you, gravi- you gravitate to this. And you know the obvious, it's his ability. But um, just him letting me hang out and letting me sit behind his kit and kind of just kind of suck the vibe in. Yeah. You know, have him rub, you know, what's that called? Osmosis. Yeah. And, you know, it was just the most important thing, like you said. Never mind, you know, learning any kind of rudiments or whatever. It's like, relax, relax. I think I was trying to play a car song. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, uh, don't you stop? Mm-hmm. And that that middle section, or towards the outro, I was just you know, I was just like, and he's like, no, no, stop, dude, come on, this is like, don't let it play you, you, you know. And here's a big, he's a big dude. He's like, Ugh. so after that, okay, you continue on in your band. Yeah. Was there ever a time that you thought to yourself, you know? If I'm going to keep doing this, I've kind of got a couple of different roads that I can go. And, you know, the obvious ones are, hey, I've got to get out there and start beating the streets and start making a band happening. Right. right? And the other one is, well, maybe I should go into some sort of formal study, some sort of higher learning. Did you ever have that kind of crisis to where you sat there and you thought, man, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do? Well, I had... Um just the ignorance of like blind ambition. Yeah. Like, I don't know how I know that. I mean, you can go take music business classes. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that that was not going to guarantee any kind of success as a musician or even as a, you know, in the business of music. Um, but I just, I was like, well, I, I want to play music and I don't care what I have to do as long as I can keep playing it. And, the thing I insisted on was always playing with people who wanted to write their own music. I, at that point, after that first band uh, in Philadelphia, um, 
I had no interest in playing any covers. And so it was just that kind of, well, none of these bands played covers, and if they did, it was for fun. Or it was just like a cover in a set, just like any a lot of bands do. Sure. You know, it wasn't, they just wanted to do their own thing. You know, I, it's just like, and my point would be, like, Devo did not start as a cover band. <laughs> you know, and what they were doing was really like, and they were asking for a lot from people because mm-hmm. they were definitively angular for what was happening, you know? And uh, so it was that kind of thing that kind of gave me the, the kind of, you know, ignorance to just keep trying because you sure. just don't know. There's no map to follow. Now, when you decided that this was going to be what you were going to do, okay, now somewhere along the way you had to get some serious practice in there had to be something that you did whether it's playing records grabbing some sort of methods that you knew you know like hey i hear that stick control is the thing to work on or right. something like that what did you practice then well it, it i was always always playing with people uh-huh um and i think that's ultimately um what led me to where i'm at and you know if there's something unique about me that somebody likes it comes from that it comes from learning how to be a drummer in a band yeah so what came first it was kind of in reverse like i started getting into more technical aspects of drumming like well into my professional career like i'd learned things by default yeah things just kind of happen because you are referencing i mean drumming you it's it's different to to uh, listen to something for inspiration because I always liken a beat to a guitar chord. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, 90% of rock music written has an E chord in it, you can't avoid the, the E chord, mm-hmm. you know, or it Open doesn't belong strings. to anybody. Yeah. So there's certain modes of playing, and, you know, what, what you do or what you try to stay away from is copying someone's feel or aping it. Right. You know, it's one or the other. Like, uh, It'd be too much if I did this, you know, which would be overtly like a Neil Pert thing or, but I could allude to that. And, you know, the people who care will get the nod. You know sure, what I mean? Sure. That's kind of interesting the way that, that you did it, that it's kind of like, I'm going to be in these different groups and I'm going to, of course, you get the old on the job training, but right. I'm sure there were times that you were going through that it's kind of like, hey, this is something that I need to actively play. You know? yeah. So I've got I've got to teach myself how to do this. Plus, there was like, yeah. no matter who I was playing with as, as a teenager, fully knowing this is not going to be the end point. I had to find outside of this this vocabulary that I was building within within the music that I was writing with these kids. Still had to find out who I was. Uh-huh. So that's still like you can't be boxed in. It was good, like that on the job training was awesome, but I still needed to figure out what else I liked about drumming yeah. uh, outside of the context of a band. So I would play the records, um, or I would just sit there and, you know, mentally isolate the drum track. And I, I think it got really fun around. U2's Unforgettable Fire with Larry Mullen. And that was like, you're doing something weird, my friend. Yeah. You're doing what? what's up with the floor, Tom? 
on your left side and you're playing it like a kick drum, you're accenting like it's a, a kick drum note and this is badass. Yeah. You know, and, um, and kind of, you know, copying these things and never wanting to emulate them, but like, how can I put this in onto the palette? You know, how, and, you know, it was that process that I, when, when I was isolating the drums, uh, you know, for uh, inspiration or just trying to better myself as a drummer, it, it would always, the information would be lifted from not words, but music from the, the pr- drum track. Sam, I want to, I want to stand up on my soapbox for <laughs> one moment and I want to, to, I want to encourage everybody. If you didn't hear exactly what Sam said for the last two minutes, go back right now. Because what he just talked about for the past two minutes is one of the things that you've heard me harp on over and over again. Is that I feel like today, I do a lot of teaching, Sam. Oh, cool. I feel like today there is a significant lack of curiosity by a lot of students. Oh, people, and, yeah, I yeah, agree. Yeah. And, and, one of the things that I think, again, here I'm going, I'm going on the old man soapbox that I think breeds that lack of curiosity is too many things are kind of presented and handed to you immediately. Because here's the thing mm-hmm. you mentioned, okay, the Larry Mullen stuff with the floor Tom over by the hat, right? Which yep. is, man, that was some heady stuff for it like was. 1984, so, right? And you know what? He, can I sidebar? Yeah. He feels bad about it because he couldn't play the whole pattern with his foot. Oh, <laughs> That is kind of interesting. And I said, yeah. he said that I met him and he said that to me. And I was like, you're lamenting to me. And I was the one moving my floor tom over right. to figure out what the fuck you were doing, Larry. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. oh, I did because I couldn't do that. And I was like, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. You did that. And I, you know, it's something else still. Right. That kind of accent. It's that kind of like using. The different drums for a voice that you may not may not be intended for. Yeah, well, that the, floor time is the resolve of a drum fill or a big accent. Yeah, but to like, you know, it's like kind of tonal kick drum performance. It, it's the old necessity is the mother of invention. Totally right. Yes. And so to kind of finish up on what I'm saying yes, is of that course. Sam Sam was basically saying that. He had to figure out on his own. He had to take these recordings and figure out what the heck was going on with this thing. In other words, you really had to like put your ears super close to this recording. Indeed. And you had to figure it out. And then there's a ton of trial and error that goes goes with that because, you know, you can't just, in 1984, you can't just dial up YouTube and look at, you know, this guy playing this pattern. You mm. had to try to figure some stuff out when you totally. did that. And, and I do feel like that is sorely missing today. I really do. There's there's a lot of times, man, that that kids just don't have that sort of they don't have that spirit of investigation. Yeah. They don't they don't have that curiosity. Yep. You know, to to really sit down for days if not weeks or not even no, months. Yeah, it becomes part of your to life. Figure that you out. Know, it's kind of ongoing for a spell. It's time well spent. Yeah, I mean it's really important. You know, it's, that's the base as foundation. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I agree with you. There's um, everything's handed to you. Know, you don't think of uh, you know a drum part as like having many many components to make it what it is. You think of oh, we'll put a loop there. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like, okay, well, the loop you're sent you to you borrowing, like, did you think of how it was made? If it was being sampled from the 60s or something, like, don't, wouldn't you want to just play that? Like, I get the, the technology, uh, how it feeds a certain branch of creativity. Cool. I'm not opposed to machines. I have those two cardboard boxes are filled with modular synth modules. Okay. So I love the computer too, <laughs> my man. Yeah. But here's the thing. I want to be able to play everything I program. Or I want that I want that um almost that contrast to go into what I'm programming. Like one hand watches the other. You know what I mean? And the combination of emulating you know a machine and what you end up with mm-hmm. or having the machine emulate a person you know it's like you get the in between you get these things that it's like you get peter gabriel in 1980 mm-hmm. like what's going on there that ultimate mix of acoustic and drum loops and that neil pert said around that time it was a question this is i guess would be moving pictures era it was yeah. peter gabriel's like uh What's that? His face is melting. Half his face. It has like Shock the Monkey on it, and I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's face fat. No, that's Phil Collins. <laughs> that's the other one. Yeah. Um, but it was as posed to Neil Peart, like, who's your favorite drummer right now? And he's like, whoever is programming Peter Gabriel's drum machines. Interesting, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Now, we've gotten into Philadelphia and you had a you had a uh, a time in Florida as well, right? Yeah, that's actually where it, that's where I I um kind of stepped it up. Mm-hmm. That's when I started playing out like in rock, you know, kind of semi pro professional you know, gigs. Just get your gigs making money, not much, but original mm-hmm. music playing the the scene, you know, in Miami. Sure. And then from there you went back to Philadelphia. Went back to Philadelphia for a minute. My uh-huh. sister got married, and then my mom and I left again. Went back to Florida. Okay, and then that's, what, what part of Florida, Sam? Uh, Miami. Okay, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. It was always uh-huh. it was always back and forth. Gotcha. And that's where I ended up joining a band in 1990 called the Holy Terrors. Uh huh. And that was definitely my first real band. These guys were five years older than me, and in, it blew open a whole another door. You know, they were coming from Sonic Youth, Pixies, um, Firehose, Husker Du, mm-hmm. uh, Killing Joke, um, just a whole other branch of guitar rock that I had a clue. You know, I knew who the Pixies were. You know, I had already loved The Clash. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there were certain bands, you know, I was aware of the Pogues and... and um, didn't know I knew about Sonic Youth, I knew about Husker Du, but I only touched the surface and I was diving into that pool. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just so beautifully wide and you know, it seemed like endless to go from Bad Brains to Fugazi to Sonic Youth to My Bloody Valentine. You know, it was just all, it was just all this guitar stuff. You know, and whether it sounded like some other kind of soundscape or outright heavy metal. This whatever what the scene that I got dumped into like blurred some lines, so it was cool. Well, it it certainly set you up for where you are right now. Oh yeah, it was that this this definitely was like in terms of like 
the indie rock, you know, part of Interpol's uh, trajectory was yeah. sorely informed by the 90s for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, somewhere along the way, you had to get yourself from, okay, you went South Florida, Philly, back yeah, to South Florida. Florida. And then, and then I, it, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here from looking at, at, at some of the interviews and things that you had online. Yeah. You basically said, you know, I'm just going to go to New York. And I mean, you really didn't have a, you didn't necessarily have a plan at that time, did you? Oh, uh, yeah, no, no, it was, <laughs> I look back and I was heady, like, man, man, I am so, I could have been ugly. Yeah. It could have been like so soul crushing. Yeah. And demoralizing. It's just like, you know, it ha- it's one or the other happens. Like you do well or you leave. Yeah. You know, it's just. And it, it, I just had an acquaintance that said, do you want to come up? It was just the, the wrong question at the right time because the answer was, uh, I'm leaving now. I had 50 bucks. Yeah. Well, it's the proverbial thing of, of if you have a friend up there, you've got a couch to crash on, so to speak. And that's probably what it that's was, what right? It was, it was, I crashed in the back of a clothing store, vintage clothing store. And then you started, did you work at that store? I, was that- I did work. It was called Beacon's Closet. It's, uh-huh pretty much an institution now you know it's big you know big warehouse type places in manhattan and in brooklyn and um but that is the place where um every everything happened out of there for me this my my social life and then connecting with daniel kessler from interpol all happened because of this place Uh uh-huh um where was i getting at Beacon's Closet clothing store. I lived, oh, so when I first got there, um, hanging out with this friend, this acquaintance fell through. And I remembered that there was even like, to a lesser degree, another acquaintance that, you know, this girl who dated a friend years before, maybe she'll remember me. And maybe she won't mind if I come and crash on her floor for a night while I figure out a plan. Well, the next thing you know, I'm running her store. It was just like, I'll paint for beer. Sure. And then I uh, started selling music, like records, off the counter. And then the next thing you know, there's like this little record enclave, you know. And so that kind of really led me to Daniel and, you know, meeting a lot of people or meeting the people at Matador. Not that that had any relation to what happened with the band, but like it set me up to be in a good position to for the, the awful word networking. Right. This is late That's 90s. That's what they used to say in the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. Networking. Yeah, I landed there in 97 uh-huh. and joined Interpol in 2000. Right. So it was that that period, I, you know, I germinated. It, just out of curiosity, was the Kessler meeting, was it something where he was coming in to shop for clothes? No, no, not, not okay, quite. Okay, I was going to say, talk about it. It would be funny. It would be funny. would be crazy, right. wouldn't it? No, the, I, we had an acquaintance that I worked with um, for a brief time. Um, and I wanted to go see the band Firewater, members of Cop Shoot, ex Cop Shoot Cop, Todd Ashley. Mm-hmm. And they were on the label that Daniel was working at at the time called Jet Set. Um, it was this Manhattan label. And I called this friend of ours and said, Hey, he worked in distribution. Can you get me on the. Gets list to this Firewater show. And he's like, Firewater. Oh, yeah, Jesset Records. This is Daniel. 
oh, you'll love, you should meet Daniel. And so I went to the show, and I don't know how, maybe Dennis, our mutual friend, gave me, gave Daniel a very good description, but Daniel walked, and he's like, are you Sam? And I was yeah. like, is it, is it that obvious? <laughs> Meaning, like, because I, I am alone. I, I mean, I had just arrived. I was in New York for, like, less than a year, like yeah. a few months. And, and he, man, Daniel just kept, he sold me on what he was doing. Like, he was working for this label Jet Set, and Mogwai was happening, uh-huh. you know, and he was starting Interpol. He hadn't started, I don't, I think Interpol was just starting. And so, at first, Daniel was soliciting me to come and see them play, not to join them. Right. And um, I did. I went down the street to, uh, uh, I'm sure some of your listeners will remember the Charleston on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. That was like, you know, where unsigned punk bands, you know, would kind of blow through town or a new local band that needed a first gig or a second gig. That's what you did. It was a pizza joint you played in the back. Right. And I went to see Interpol there and could only stay for like four songs because it was really really and i felt really bad because i was like man i like daniel you know it's gonna be i don't want to oh he doesn't ask me what i thought because i don't want to be a dick but it wasn't good what was it was it (laughs) but was it any of the songs that ended up on like turn on the bright lights i think the only song that maybe they were playing that i would people would know would be pda Okay, and that was I don't know on. if I heard that that day, but that you know that is from the original batch. Of, yeah, was Paul singing? At that yeah, time oh yeah, also? it was everybody was in place except for me. It was a a guy named Greg Drudy, uh huh, who I'd never met before, but he was the drummer for the first two years of Interpol. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I. It was really a train wreck. Well, now here's a completely <laughs> here's a completely subjective question for you about this. Okay, yeah. do you feel like that when you heard them and it was just it was not good? Do you just think that it was a case of here's a group of guys that have gotten together that have not found their potential yet? They haven't found their songwriting voice. Yep, that's why they didn't it was. know they didn't know who each other were. That's what it looked like. A few dudes who got together at NYU by virtue of being musicians and thinking each other were kind of cool, they were just really just in their own world. All three of those guys, the, the, or, or four at that time, At I that guess, time, yeah. Were NYU students. Yep. They're all NYU students, and it seemed like they were playing four different versions of the same song. Uh-huh. It just was not cohesive to the point where I couldn't. I could, it was too soon. If, for the, my biggest critique would have been, you should wait two more months. And play those songs to death. Yeah. You know, then I heard shortly after that, maybe a year later, six months later, I heard their first demo because it was recorded at uh, a studio that I was recording at myself with a different band a week later. And Interpol didn't like their original drummer. And at that time, I didn't like the band I was in. And this engineer, Doug Henderson, who used to be a partner with Dave Sardi. Mm-hmm. We should all know who Dave Sardi is. Um, at a studio they, they, they co-own together uh, called Moose, which is no longer, mm-hmm. the building's even gone. Uh, incredible. I mean, 
it was co-owned by Dave Sardi, so you can imagine it just had, it sounded like Dave's, you know, just everything had a growl. It was this rich analog done right. Cool little studio. Really, really awesome. And Doug pulled me aside and he's like, well, I see why you hate the band you're in. They suck. And I'll tell you what, you know, Daniel Kessler. And I was like, yeah, he's like, you need to be in his band. They need you. You need them. And I was like, he's too young. Like they're too young. And it sounds too, (laughs) man, they'd kill me. It sounds too retro for me. It sounds too eighties for me. And, um, he's like, you should uh, give it a chance, whatever. And another year went by. I was not interested. And I remember starting to write music on guitar with a friend of mine, um, which never really went anywhere. And I played him the Interpol demo tape cassette. And he's like, oh, man, this is awesome. I was like, you really like it? He's like, yeah. Can we, if we get a set together, can we play with them? And I was like, I'm sure. I know Daniel. Like, yeah, that would be fun. And that was the end. That was the last I would think of it for a while. And this project, whatever I was doing with this friend of mine, you know, it lasted a minute, never left my apartment, you know. And then I think Daniel called me and he was like, hey, what, what are you up to? It's like, yeah, nothing really, you know, musically. And uh, he's like, you know, we should really meet up. So I said, OK. And so we finally did meet up and they had recorded yet another demo. And this time, oh, they nailed it. Okay. It was much more realized Interpol. And I went home and put that demo on and panicked. Because I was like, I need to be in this band now. Like, it, it was like this. You knew extreme, it. It was an intuitive thing. Uh, it was like, no, this is this is what I, I gravitate to this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like. And it was a, at the time, there wasn't much atmosphere happening in rock music, especially locally in New York. It felt like every other musician wanted to be Johnny Thunders. And it was just this ode to really simple rock and roll. And I didn't want to do that. I was like, no, I didn't want to do that. And I think maybe the last like real rock band I liked was Jawbox. Mm-hmm. So it has nothing to do with like, drug abandoned, you know, nah, 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 you know, and aside from that kind of, um, more angular approach, I always had a thing for just big atmosphere. I was like, where is that's not happening? Where, where is the atmosphere when you strike a chord? You know, where is these four AD bands? Where have they right. gone? What's good? Why have kids unplugged their delay pedals? And the next thing you know, I'm hearing, um, Daniel and Paul play guitar. And I'm like, what? Whoa, wait a minute. And the cool thing was I played it for some friends and they, they were like, is, is that a guitar or synth? And I was like, well, it's guitar. You ask, uh, no, wait a minute. <laughs> like he's right. Like right. it has more of a pad like quality to it, you know, not so percussive with a guitar, you know, it's just, and I just realized it was what not only, their use of delay and reverbs with how Daniel and Paul played together, creating chords with single notes, mm-hmm. you know, creating these, these complex little, and, um, well, that triggered like, oh, that's why I like Sonic Youth. Lee Ronaldo and Thurston Moore create one pattern, you know, one mode mm-hmm. together with, because they're so, oh, 
because they're so polar opposite. Yeah. You know, so it was like very guitar centric and not stopping at the distortion in four chords. Still having that spirit. It still was like when when it's going to be up, it's going to be up. And when it's not, it's going to go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, it's going to go down avenues that, um, and funny enough that at times, maybe to their dismay at this point, this is 2000, almost sounding proggy. It's like, I understand almost that. like, okay, the, I understand the new, uh-huh. on, you know, and there is a song that we used to call Cubed. Uh, that might have been like falsely titled Mascara and it only exists in a really awful form. No, no. I think we finally did record it. I don't know if it's ever been released. There was a really bad acoustic version pre-signing to Matador. But that was definitely, I was like, oh my God, this is like if um, the Chameleons were doing a Yes cover. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, one thing I think that's that's kind of interesting is that, and you even mentioned something about this, is that prior to like the turn of the millennium in New York, New York in, in so many ways was almost a little bit of a forgotten entity when it came to rock bands, it, it, yeah. right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, around that turn, you had some different bands that came together like The Strokes, yep. Yeah, Yeah, Yes. Yep. And then Interpol, right? Now, here's the here's the interesting part to me. A lot of times you guys get lumped in with it, and you couldn't be more different, in my opinion. No, I mean than, and, than those groups. Yeah. So, uh, I I think that in some ways that you guys and it's you're not victims, but I was going to say you kind of get lumped into that. You guys are part of the New York resurgence of rock and roll, totally. from back in that that early millennium time. Yeah, it's crazy, and it's crazy how that to a lot of people at this point, has the same allure that it did when you think of the Velvet Underground or the Ramones or Blondie or Talking Heads, like late 60s or that mid-70s period. Um, and it was weird because it didn't... You're in the eye of the storm. Mm-hmm. When all that stuff was happening, you're still, like, jealous of the Strokes, but you like them, so you wish them well, but there's an envy that they're the biggest thing at the moment. And you see, you know, Nick Zinner in passing as he, you know, is going, you're going to the airport, he's leaving it, you know, mm-hmm. and all your friends, guys in TV on the radio, you know, we would come across these guys, they would be working at the coffee shop that we all went to, they would have a rehearsal space with some other people or some other crossover bands, you know, side projects, so those guys were always around, the Battles guys were around, um, and then the next thing you know, we're all gone and we're running into each other in Tokyo and, you know, and people think that we're all hanging out together at some bar like it was in the seventies. It's like, no, we're all working. Yeah. I don't, when I go back to New York, everybody's gone. Like, and you're asking me about like some kind of scene. It's like, well, no, they, what happened was they realized there was a scene. Now they all have record deals and they're all touring the world at different times. Like, and you know what? I haven't really seen anybody regularly since that period. That's like it. All well, those people you used to see on the street all the time, you know, or you see them, you know, at the coffee shop or going to their rehearsal, you know, and you're wishing them well and you're knowing that 
lot of people are going to their shows these days, you know, and then bang, Interscope Records, you know, or both TV on the radio and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Those bands are, you guys are, for lack of a better term, victims of success. Yeah. That's what, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like, well, this kind of how it looks. It's, wow. Everybody thinks we're all hanging out. Yeah. You know, drinking all night and no, we're. You're working. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to step back just a second about when you were first joining Interpol. Okay. Because I've said on this show before, uh, for our long-term listeners, they will know that, that I picked Obstacle One as one of my great drum tracks. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're going to actually, uh, Sam agreed to do something kind of special that uh, we've never done on this show before. We're going to do it in a few minutes, but I want to lead into it by asking you, um, when you finally got a chance to play with Kessler and Banks yeah. and, and, and Carlos, I guess, at that sure. time, right? Especially at that yeah, that's when we were on fire right. together. Did, did you know from the jump when you joined that band, did you like, I've caught lightning in a bottle? Did oh, you... man, okay, yeah. So getting back, like I heard that demo. Yeah. Um, which is now referred to as the Grey EP and goes for like 500 bucks on eBay if you find a copy. You know, it's like, now it's legend. Yeah. Um, and I, I was like, okay, yeah, this is going to happen, so... When I went to rehearse with them, you know, they were really like, you know, just mind the arrangements, but play, you know, we want to see what you would do. Yeah. And then they said, how about if we start with something brand new that we haven't played with a drummer? And I was like, cool. And Daniel later told me that the way I entered the song was what he always imagined and that he looked at everybody and was like, "Mm mm-hmm. And it was just that simple, just that simple. Of like, you know, it was making such a simple choice. Yeah. Play such a rudimentary beat that was like the fact that I was riding on the floor, Tom, for this one side, just heard that he was like, and to him, who he will confess to you like this very moment, he doesn't, he doesn't have a good vocabulary when it, when it comes to expressing rhythm. And so he felt frustrated. He would feel even before... He would attempt to try to suggest what I would do. He was already like, he's doing it. I don't have to try to say, do th- hit that drum there with that drum, you know? Right. And um, they were all kind of blown away. And it was just kind of that, it was I- I- instant. You guys pull the proverbial lottery ticket there because that just doesn't happen. No, now. it doesn't. It's really, and. And I, you know, even even admiring the music and, and the sense of atmosphere that they already constructed where I could literally step in, I didn't know if it was going to work because I didn't like them. Yeah. <laughs> they were hard. Like, Daniel, I liked a lot. Um, by and we're virtue talking about of, personally here. Personally, yeah. Daniel I, it was easy because I had a pre-existing rapport with him. Um, but Carlos and Paul were hard pills to swallow. Did, they were, were just you, different. You the new guy? I'm was the new guy, it? and Carlos was just an asshole. Uh-huh. He was really in love with himself, and Paul <laughs> Paul was just complicated. Yeah. He's like double BA in literature at 21. So, fair enough. But, you know, it was like he was 10 years younger than me. There's and something I, to that, too. Yeah, and I was like, I don't, I want to be in a band with somebody 10 years older than me. 
Yeah. I don't want to be the old one. I don't like myself that much, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh. And then I had a friend of mine who lives on the West Coast, and he's like, man, you got it wrong, dude. You need, you're a rock drummer. You need to be playing with some guys younger than you. You're done. <laughs> like, you're, you're retired already, man. These kids know what's up now. And he's like, what's wrong with you? Join the band. And I was like, you're right. Just let me get my head out of my ass. Stop being uptight about age and just give it a chance. Well, shortly where I just let it go, I realized how fucking smart Paul was. Yeah. And like, and I didn't care about his lack of street smarts. He had a different sort of street smart. He'd been around the world. Uh, he comes from privilege. Um, but man, his imagination was insane. And he was very, um, so British in the way he articulated. He's the greatest, the thing I loved about him the most was he's always calm. Yeah. Never got, even when he got quote unquote angry, it's hard to tell. And so I appreciated that. Although he could be a total snot and have the singer's disease and want all the attention and not, you know, let you know where the after party is on purpose. <laughs> right. Because he doesn't want the other good-looking guy around. <laughs> does, uh, does Paul write all the lyrics? Absolutely. Kessler writes the music, most of the music, right? Pretty much. Kessler, would have to, to be fair to all the work that Paul does, mm-hmm. um, Kessler comes in with the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. Like Kessler comes in with parts that could exist... As, as like if he'll, he'll have two parts mm-hmm. and it could be a simple piece it could already exist you could play it on acoustic guitar or a piano better yet and it would it would survive as some kind of compositional piece of music and then what happens thereafter is it becomes it's all the the transitional bits and all the counter stuff that paul writes that makes it an interpol track and what you do and what you do. Absolutely. And, and that's why, even when I don't want to be there playing that song for the 25th time. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Playing the verse to that song for the 25th time in a row. Even when I say, God, I need that, they're like, no, no, no. Uh, you, you, you might trigger something. It's like Paul is, like, there is definitely, um, we're attached or like there's he you know we commonly view the drums in Interpol as his punctuation mm-hmm. his melodic punctuation and so yeah i mean i can't get out of writing sessions even if i wanted to <laughs> they yeah. won't let me well you should be there because one of the things that i highlighted when i was talking about obstacle one and we're about to get there we're Ooh. about to get there is i feel like when i listen to Interpol there are three things that make Interpol Interpol. And I mean, I if I hear one of these three things, I know who it is. One, it's composition. I it's this it's it's the chord progression, it's the atmosphere. Yeah. Banks's voice. Instantly, right? And your drum parts, man. Cool. I appreciate it, that. It, th- yeah. Those three things to me that if one of those went away, you've lost that band. And, you know, and that's, you know, with all due respect to, you know, Carlos, who uh, made his own decision to walk away from music, period, as much as, like, it was obvious that something was going to change because he's not there and he had a big, almost too big of an impact on 
the textural aspect of the band, like all the keyboard stuff, mm-hmm. it became way too important to him. He took it out of context. And that's when he decided to leave. It was kind of at this time where he's getting into acting and film score. And he essentially just wanted to write score over Interpol chord progressions. And it created such a conflict between Paul and him because Paul would say, you're writing the vocal. I can't sing here. Do you understand that? And Carlos, who was the king at arbitration, would go, well, why can't you? You theoretically explain to me, and it would be like, theoretically explain to you? Fuck off, man. We're a rock band. Like, And just wielding that kind of intellect for the sake of getting your way is crazy. That So he was very imbalanced and it was it was it was detrimental to the band and so i at that point i know like that 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 trump's talent right there when you're destructive to something that people love and live breathe and eat like you are no longer credible Mm -hmm. so get the fuck out of the room and we'll take it from here and the first thing i said to everybody who there was a little bit of panic losing a cult of personality yeah. in your band is like, we got this. I hate that phrase too, but that's the only thing you could say. It's like, no, if I, if you don't depend on us, I do. And, and I am, I am a fraction of the musician that Carlos was on a theoretical, theoretical level, but I know this band and it can be done. And sure enough, that's when Paul picks up a bass. So it, it is more than than you say. I agree with you without seeming, you know, too too uh, too proud of my contribution. It's the three of us. I that's completely it. it's agree. It's like the burning elements, mm-hmm. and and like I say, not to repeat myself. That's why Paul will say, "No, you have to be here." Yeah, it's the signature element. Those three things to me are the signature elements of the group. Yeah, yeah. So now, without any further ado, we're going to do something on the show that we've never done before. And Sam has agreed so graciously to listen to a track that he played on, and he's probably played 5,000 times, and like he wants to hear it again. But what we're going to do is we're going to take the aforementioned Obstacle 1. And Sam, look, here's here's what I kind of envision that we'll do on this. And man, feel completely and totally free to just go at times... I don't even have a good answer for this. Let's just go on, right? But what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the track. And I've got written down a few places that I'm going to stop the track. And I'm going to ask you, why, how in the hell did you come up with this? Cool. Right? Or, or, or who started this? And, and better yet, are there some places where the band went, what are you doing back there? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, cool. Yeah, let's so do it. Let's go ahead. And I'm just going to start this track right from the get-go. So this is obstacle one. Here we go. stopped this at about 35 seconds right. do you know why i stopped it right there uh is it is it the drum pattern it's the kick pattern. the kick pattern now that's got some bonham influence in it right there oh. 
God okay. bless his soul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, it follows the bass line also. He follows the drum pattern. Okay, gotcha. All right, so you came up with that right there. Yeah. Um, and I... I, yeah, that kind of that is a very. Um, I wanted to uh, darn it, darn it. I wanted to make that bounce more. So, uh, so I could, like the intro is a you know playing along in unison with that, but that can't go on forever, right? Let's just add you know without um, cluttering it up too. That's why it's kind of intermittent. You know, it's like fitting the notes in to this 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 part of the phrase. Mm-hmm. You know, and then leave the room. Do do that do do right. do that do do that do bap, and that's like I, I find that to be like a whole bottom movement. Yeah, you know, it's and a he nice would kind count. of yeah hold back on that last note to kind of drag it out a little bit for a little bit of drama, just a little bit of like <laughs> yeah, what you doing? Bap, you know, right. kind of. That, that attitude, not drama, attitude. Right, the bounce of that kick drum and bass line, what you're talking about, it's a really nice counterpoint to what was just a, a straight kind rock of straight groove, thing. Man, yeah, straight rock that. groove, totally. Yeah. And it, it, it was Carlos that was like, uh, I got, well, Sam has the bass line, and then he just started playing. Gotcha. And then the beauty there is his fills in between that. Right, right. Okay, so we're going to keep going here. And by the way, Sam, it, it, we're still recording while this is going on. If you want to say something during this entire thing, if it's still playing, man, we'll just, just mention something if you've got a good story about it. Okay, cool. so here we go. We're going to keep going. We're at 35 seconds. Okay, so stop this. We're at a minute two. Now, question for you. Okay, yes. now, there's this part of the song where there's a little bit of a breakdown, right? Bass yeah. drops out. Kick pattern stops, right? Okay, well, the bass comes back in, but the kick pattern stays out. Stays out. Yeah. Reason for that? I, you know, I don't know if I could really take credit for that, but maybe I can. I think, ahead, it, I think it's still it's just you and me here. <laughs> I think it's still kind of um playing off of that um bounciness. So uh-huh. okay, the dynamic is kind of quieting a bit. We don't want it to totally break groove, but it can't have the same impact because there's something else that's gonna happen. Uh-huh. So that whole just kind of to to ban it, you know, filling in what would be the kick drum pattern. Um I think that might have been a lot Carlos happening in there in terms of controlling, not controlling, but suggesting what the guitars do in there uh-huh. to start creating this kind of woven thing. This, you know, if you hit Dennett over here, Dennett pops out over there, you know, that gotcha. kind of a stereotype stereo- thing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, letting the bass guitar be the kick drum for a sec. Got it. You know, it's playing with the, the dynamics. It's really, we're all playing the same pattern. Right. You know, it's right. like using different voices. You know, you could voice that on a drum kit with, you know, a few toms and what I'm playing. Right. You know? Moving on. Right. It's going to be a short segment here. The reason I stopped it right there 
and I want to I want to make a big deal out of this. Okay. We're at a minute nine, and that's the first place in an ass kicking rock song where there's a crash symbol. Yeah. Now yeah. that's unusual. That is unusual. That the mind of an orchestrator in that type of thing. You don't ever unless you're looking for that type of thing. I mean, come on, man. That's that's pretty creative, man, to not put a crash from the beginning of a flag waving style rock song to there. Did you realize that? I did. Yeah. I did. Um and sometimes if if the track presents itself, I'll try to play out something or not play something on principle. Okay. To see what happens. Uh-huh. To see, okay, you're just being dumb to just suggest <laughs> that you don't yeah. use a ride symbol in this by virtue of not using a ride. But sometimes that crutch forces you to do something else. And Interpol, the Interpol experience is either you didn't hit that symbol hard enough and loud enough or goddamn stop hitting that symbol. I can't, it's extremes. I, they won't let me be intuitive. Right. <laughs> they I, I really hope the other two guys are going to listen to this interview. I, it, I hope they... <laughs> Hmm, I wonder. They might they might listen to it by solely for the to see if I'm talking shit about them. <laughs> and well, maybe they wouldn't, so then I'm free. But I love them to death. It's uh, all with due respect. But like sometimes it feels time, that yeah. way. Like when sure. I'm thinking, okay, hold hold back on the big rock accents and let, let the guitar do some expression. And then when I'm doing that, they're like, Hey, can you are you live back there? Hello? Can we get an accent please? I'm like you know, yeah. one day you do, one day you don't. You're driving me crazy. Yeah. I, I think, though, you are speaking uh, to probably 95% oh. of oh. our brethren here. Oh, man. Yeah. So we, we sympathize. Because yes. all those guitar players yes. are drummers, too, uh-huh. in their big brains. <laughs> okay. Got another short segment here. Okay. So let's keep going. Okay, Tom Pattern. That's right. I defended that. Okay, so that was one that they were sort of like, I don't know about this. Well, this brings back um, a recollection of Carlos went ahead and did a really cool demo uh-huh. of the song on four-track cassette. Just, just to get, he had an arrangement idea, and just to get it through, and he was articulating that part where it would be just, bump, 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 and I'm like... No, man. No, there is. This song's all groove. Yeah. I'm not. No, I'm not going to. No, no, I'm not doing that. Well, and you added some melodic sensibility Back by going from, to the different times. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, no, mm-hmm. it's like that's uh, again, let's not break the pattern. Right. That that be, and it's so funny. That becomes way too conventional. Yeah. It's like we're there's like there's not a crash symbol opening the song. And right. We're not going to super standard right there. That's the. Beautiful way Carlos, Carlos would contradict himself. He becomes so standard at times. And she's like, you're insane. <laughs> like, you want to, like, totally redefine the wheel, and then you're like, no, you defend it to the hilt. Yeah. And he was just like, but it should be. I was like, no, no, I don't care what it sh- you think it should be. If people are dancing, they're not stopping. I, I don't want, I don't think they should stop. In certain songs, maybe they should stop. 
and maybe it's just like I use dancing as just a term of feeling the right. song. Yeah. Even if they're not literally dancing, you're going to bum them out. You know, the groove becomes, if they're into all the, what I like to call the, you know, the intellectual scope of the song, melodically translating and listening to Paul's lyrics, they, man, give them the bed to lie on or jump on. Yeah. Nice, man. Yeah. Because you know? the, the pattern that he was suggesting does create a sort of stop or, or that, cre- yeah, it stops the forward it's, momentum. Yeah. It's um, uh, accent, accent. Uh-huh. Exclamation, you know, right. it's very orchestral, and it's like, this is, I appreciate that. Yeah. Now we want to keep this moving. Right. And it adds, and it adds a melodic it's a dimen- tone to yeah, it as well. There's a dimensional yeah. thing, because it's a, a bat boom. Right. You know? Yeah. Chris Franz, that's where that comes from. <laughs> Move, moving on. Okay, here we go. You knew I was going to stop there, didn't you? Yeah. You knew it, didn't I? I? Yeah. No crash, man. Floor floor time. time. Why not? (laughs) Good. Hey, you know what? Don't say anything else. Let's just keep going. All right. Now, here's what I'm going to say. We had an add-on here from the first time through this section. Right. Okay? All right? Right. So we're back to the bottom-style kick pattern, the bouncing kick pattern. Yep. But now there's an added 16th note hi-hat thing that goes to a tom. Right. Okay, now here's another. This is another great orchestration thing. In other words, we're building the song, right? Keeping the forward momentum going. Let's add something new there. Right? Was this another one of those things that, hey, man, this just feels good? Yeah. It sounds just, it, right. It, it feels good to play, too. It feels like it belongs it, there. It feels like it, and that's what happened. It felt like it tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know what to do here. Boom. You know, it's like, it, it, you know, I like to look at those things is like, that's what keeps me interested in keeping things basic at times. Because it's a little, it's almost a... Uh, a little fill that's just kind of married into the movement. Yeah, it's not you're not you're not doing a you know um, an accentuated you know right whatever single stroke or paradiddle kind of thing. It's just a little 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 embellishment, and it kind of gives. Um, it's just a you know it feels like a fill, but like in the context of this beat. Right. You know what I mean? It, it, it continues the build it of the song, It continues the build of the song. It's doing yeah. something. It's a dynamic thing. And um, Daniel would beat into everybody's head, electronic music doesn't announce, doesn't announce a transition. And Fair it, enough. And when things come, and then like, it, it, like Boards of Canada or something like that, he would say, if Shaker will start on the one somewhere, and he's like, if you really listen to that music, it feels like the world has changed because it's so subtle and, you know, things are moving so glacially. Yeah. And he was really into whenever it could happen, whether it could or not, to try to find something that, that, that triggers a change like that or just triggers not even a change, but like an accent. Right. Something accentual. And it doesn't necessarily repeat itself throughout the song. You know, and 
you know, you, sometimes you can't, you can't build that. It just has to happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. Moving on. We're going to listen to a little bit longer of a segment this time. Cool. Okay, we're at 247 on the track. And Sam, in the business that we're in, I like to sometimes call this kind of a groove the gig loser. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how did you get this past the guys? Oh, no, it's what they suggested to me and how I had to get it past not wanting to do it. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's just one of those things where um, Daniel referenced... Oddly enough, um, a Smashing Pumpkin song. Okay, I so think it was there was like a template. What's that like, Siva or something? It's off of off of Gish. Uh-huh. And um, I was like, yeah, you know, I see where you're coming from, but I don't understand. And I was just doing this, you know, that you know, just a very basic, rudimentary kind of pattern there. And he's like, oh, that's it. I was like, no, 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 it's not. And I got it's just kind of that thing that stuck, and then I was like, "Let me come up with something better. I'll use it as a placeholder." And then next thing you know, it's recorded. It's recorded, yeah. yeah. And I never liked it. But you know, though, man, let me tell you, the simplicity, like you said, the simplicity, Sim- the rudimentary aspect of it, man, it feels good under the hands to play that. It, it does. Feels over right. time. It's like uh-huh. okay, yeah, yeah. But you know, in in a way, though, it's like, what what are we doing here? Why am I? Where am I? <laughs> it really, it it would it it would just throw me for a loop. Like I don't get it, and it I really had a hard time like figuring out where the one was going to happen and, out of that. And I used to use the worst kind of like landmarks to cheat because I yeah. lose count because it's just so numbifying. Yeah, you know, and you know, bad monitors and all that, and. Uh, you know, uh, there would be so many times where I couldn't hear the kick drum, which was going to just take me out of it, and it would be frightening. And it, I would get so mad because I was like, I hate this drum part anyway. It should be something more solidified as a, as a you know, three-voiced yeah. drum pattern. Um, kick, snare, hi-hat, something. And uh, it's just one of those things, like a quirk that, again, like... Daniel was just like, that's it. I'm like, no, Daniel, that's just that's that's just me like um, blowing my nose. You know what I <laughs> yeah, mean? It's just like right. I just do it. It's just like it, it. That's something I would do to warm up. You know, I mean, sure. it's just you just right. It's something we do unconsciously. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And like to go, oh, here, yeah, we're gonna print that. It's like, no. Oh. But you know, you can't. Sometimes you just you just have to p- choose your battles. Yeah. Because ultimately. 
with them liking that so much, I was handcuffed. I could never think of something past it. And then it's just like, oh, I guess it does work. And I'm just going to go upon faith. And it's just another like, funny thing that people who don't play drums have such bizarre drum ideas sometimes. Yeah. Well, it works on this for yeah. sure, man. And it's a signature part of this little bridge. That yeah, yeah, it became, around. yeah. Yeah. Much to my chagrin. <laughs> we're moving on. We're keeping on. It's in the things that she puts in my hair. Her story is a boring stuff. She's always calling my bluff. She puts a she puts the weights into my little heart. And she gets in my room and she takes it apart. She puts the weights into my little heart. I said she puts the Okay, all right, we're getting close to the end here on this, all right? Okay, now we've moved to sort of, we're starting to get to the outro of this song, right? Yeah. Okay, we moved over, we've got a ride pattern, and we've got a, a, well, a more of a traditional rock pattern. More, but, yeah. it's, but it's got this syncopated snare drum thing that's happening in there now. And so now we're almost kind of calling on a totally different style. This is something that's more emblematic of almost like R&B. You can almost take that groove and put it inside of like, a, you know, an R&B style groove. Well, that's kind of the idea really and, and maybe uh somehow channeled through can those kind of like it, it, i mean at the time I, I always listen to r&b yeah. these days at the time i was delving back a little more and daniel had been playing a lot of can for me and um finding the similarities mm-hmm. in like what that guy was doing and then you know kind of bringing it all back with you know, building a big rock outro. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was glad that, that, that at the time I was kind of working on that kind of, kind of pattern and that, Oh, we go. And there it It, is. is, So I was saved from doing that awfully, like almost warm up pattern. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To like getting to really stretch. Uh huh. Cause it was, it was, uh, it was difficult to play, because it was such, you had such a tendency to bash to how to like punk rock the ending. And really, what I learned going back on the Bright Lights kind of um, on that 15th anniversary thing was to play it more like an R&B guy and not bash it at hell out of it. And man, it sang. Like yeah. I finally kind of got back to th- that intention, which was very frenetic but collected. Well, and, and to embolden that point, you had the perfect opportunity here to wash out your ride, and you're not, man. You're playing ride ping pattern on this thing. Full ping. Yeah, and what, man, what kind of a symbol is that? That, that is a great sounding symbol, man. That is a Sabian Rock Ride 20-inch. Man, it sounds great on this, it, this really track, great. man. Yeah. I, you know, I have to give Peter Cadis some credit, too, because there's some sweet compression happening. Yeah, sure. But... You know, you compress a bad symbol, it's going to sound like a bad symbol compressed. That's true. You compress a good symbol, it's going to be God is, yeah. is tinging, tinging our brain. <laughs> tinging. It, you know, it, it just has man. such a 
it's a definitive ride symbol yeah in the words of uh jeffrey lebowski the compression really tied the drums together (laughs) (laughs) so true so we've got about 40 seconds left let's keep going Nice drum fill to finish it out with no crash. No crash. Back on that floor time. Back on the floor time. A short ending on a drum. Not even a short crash or not even a, nope. not even a grabbed or choked crash. No. Nope. Flat out ended on a drum. Bump. Yeah. We got a lot of symbol in there after all. We did. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that ultimately, too, you know, what's great about that song, drum-wise, is that... it. it Without a lot of crashing going on, and you know that that frequency happening more commonly throughout the track, it really does present the ride in a different light because it's yeah. such a relief to finally hear that voice. Yeah. You know, and then you know, just and I, I often forget like the keyboard Rhodes part that's happening, which is really a beautiful timber mm-hmm. and with that ride symbol. And then all the high guitar parts, it's very, it becomes very musical. You know, man, I knew that, it, that if you decided that it was cool to do this, that we would get into a conversation like this because I knew that there had to be a lot of thought when it came to the individual parts of the song. These, these, you, you could take this song and you could give it to most drummers and they could play pretty much the same groove or just a slight variation all the way through. Yeah. But there had to be a lot of thought between you guys. To orchestrate these different parts to make it special and to make it really more than anything it makes it interpol yeah i think um there's certain songs that like rhythmically it's going to be driven you know by bass and drums yeah it's just you you know you could try to make you could try to write that kind of song but when it just reveals itself and you know carlos and i were just really on the same page like not as people yeah, but when it came to like playing together, our points of reference were very mutually respected, and we could do it. When we would reference like a Killing Joke kind of thing, or like he could play some Bonham, uh, he could play some John Paul Jones, yeah, as well. You know, so we 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 did. We could go into these like extreme opposite, you know, points of reference. And he, the good thing about him, he didn't care about referencing anybody he had no he was unabashed about referencing people he didn't care what you thought he didn't care if you thought he was ripping off um the guy from new order peter hook mm-hmm. you go yeah so what yeah i did because he's amazing do you write bass lines just as good as him no i don't think you do <laughs> you're right you know so it's just like in a way it was just like you know please please don't perpetuate that my friend we're really trying to like really move away from anything related to joy division but in a way he's right well it's the old 
what's the old adage? It's like the, you know, good artists borrow and the great artists, artists steal, I suppose, you know? Yeah. You know, and it, 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 it but the thing is, it's like, journalists, you're not, you're not really finding anything out, my friend. You know, and you could, you could go to Interpol and you're just starting out and bitch about them, you know, about them ripping off Joy Division. And then what they do is the next British band that comes around, the next generation, they say, oh, you're just ripping off Interpol. And it's just like, ah, you're full of shit. Leave that band alone. Yeah. Leave them alone. And it, it commonly would be like, so Sam, what do you think of the editors? I was like, you know what? I think you should leave them alone because you want me to be angry right. at them. And you know what? I feel their fucking pain because you were saying that we, you were saying I was ripping off Stephen Morris. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, so what if I was? Shut up. It's rock music. <laughs> it's like Charles Thompson, better yet, better yet. Charles Thompson from the Pixies said, inherently, at the onset, rock and roll was highly unoriginal at this point in time. So you pick up guitar, bass, and drums, you're already, you're already aping 80% of the, you know, rock, uh, postmodern music. Yeah. You know, so please, let's stop that. And that's how great things expand, you know? Sure. That's how something becomes something else, you know? And, um, I mean, God, when we're all hanging out together without journalists, that's all we talk about is each other's music that we like, mm-hmm. you know? The great drum beats that so and so played, and how this, you know, how that guitar player is just has articulation that is just like, you know, angelic or whatever, you know. I mean, if Josh Homie came up to me and said, "Dude, you're you're ripping off this track," because I, I fancied like I kind of ripped off some Queens on the new record, <laughs> yeah. and I'd be, "That's right, Josh." <laughs> but please yeah. do not hit me. Yeah. well sam thank you for taking that little dalliance of going through obstacle one man i i think it's brilliant man it's fantastic now it's fun let's talk about a day in the life of interpol on the road and you don't have to go into too much detail but but i like to to kind of find out how you guys do things and how you do things because everybody's got a slightly different way that they approach things when they're on the road yeah Okay. Survival. Yeah. So, well, that is that is the key, man. So I always say self-preservation. Yeah. Because you know when you're on, I've always said that when you're on the road for it, really any more than just a few days, you start getting into what I call the, you're in a suspended reality. You know. Very well put. Yeah, it's what you are. You're in a suspended reality when you're because I mean life is still going on outside of you being on that bus or in these airports or whatever that you're doing. Exactly. But I mean you're you're so locked in and focused on you know making a day happen with that so let's kind of start from the beginning and and let's let's take it from like a a a bus style tour yeah okay i don't need like we are fortunate enough to kind of get get on graduate to a bus rather soon yeah and what i realized was this is more than just a a means of conveyance man this is home it's a Mm -hmm. roving apartment it's home yeah and why would i ever want to stay in a hotel Mm-hmm. Or get on an airplane, and everybody was still loved, loved it, and especially back at the beginning, it was because you could still drink and smoke weed, <laughs> whatever you were doing, <laughs> yeah. and still and get to the next place. And um, after you know a few years into touring, you know people started getting, 
yeah, I don't want to be on the bus so long, so I'm going to fly to the next place if it's a 20-hour ride. Or, you know, I, I, um, I don't want to shower at the venue. I'm just going to go to a day room. And I'm like, well, I'm not leaving the bus. I'm not getting a hotel room. I'll shower in the venue, and I can put all my things on the bus, and I know where they're at, and I'm not going through airport security or just packing up, you know, a day bag to go to a hotel to just shower and just... It just seems so interruptive, like, every day. It's the worst part of touring. Mm -hmm. And what you want is stability. And, you know, you want the common. And that's, to me, it only makes sense that I have it here, and it moves and gets me to the next place. So if I don't have to fly somewhere, if I have the luxury to just take my time with the bus, or if I don't have to get a hotel room, I just... I. It gets to the point where it's like, I can't eat this slice of pizza again. Yeah. That's like, it's a hotel. Oh my God. I remember when this was a novelty, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm sure some people would say, just shut the hell up because that's a pretty good looking bed that you're getting to sleep, you know, and and I know that there is a a privilege to it all, but I'd prefer to be in that bunk on the bus. Yeah. You know, especially constantly moving, you get a good driver (laughs) and just the whole romance of just got to go. You know, going to play the next show. Got to keep moving, and in that suspended reality, I'd love, I love that. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to try to like sync that with my home life because it doesn't mirror it at all. I'm not going on vacation, right? I am working. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, and, and I'm lucky enough to where it's you know playing drums in front of people that like this band, but I have to be reminded too that it is work. Yeah, because or else I'm not gonna gonna be lazy, or I could just play drums at home. Sure, you know what I mean. I don't need to make this big statement, but it's work and it has to feel like it. Yeah. So let's say you pull in to a new city. Let's say you pull into Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're on a bus. Do you try to do anything in particular when you're out and you're on a bus? As far as like, do you try to maintain normal daytime like normal hours we sleep at night get up at a regular time in the morning or we've had some guests on the show that like to kind of flip things around that's what i do yeah to where they will try to get up later in the day so that the show will be sort of in a midday like a productive part of their their daytime that's that's what works for me Mm -hmm. otherwise like i'm already spent like nine o'clock at night you know, I, I at home, I get up sometimes at four in the morning. Right. Because what I could do is, that's still the witching hour still happening. Uh-huh. So, wow, instead of staying awake until four to come in here and do something, wake up at four, have a cup of coffee, and now to be as, as alert as you are in the morning, but it's still the witching hour. Yeah. And when I do that, though, I go to bed at nine o'clock at night. Uh-huh. You know, so um, there is a, you know, you can try to build all that in, that kind of romance of evening. Uh, but I can't, you can't do that on the road, man. I can't be waking up before in the morning and, and play, have to play a show at nine. Right. You know, so I, I try not to wake up before noon. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if I get up too early, which I'll just do, you know, by, by virtue of habit or, you know, discomfort or whatever, I try to get back to sleep. Yeah. You know, just try to, for, and, and and usually it's no problem to get on that, like, 
right. wake up at noon. But it's the one time where you don't feel like a loser. Yeah, it, it's it's a combination of a doing the right thing, the right and thing. then and then you're also practicing some self preservation at exactly. the same time. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. I mean, sleep deprivation is so unhealthy, and you know, man, I'm sure in your time, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. you've uh, missed some hours. It's not. It's not good. It's not good. Um, and another thing too is uh, the adrenaline too after a show. Yeah. It's impossible. Even if I was really, if I had been up too long, it's impossible to go right to sleep. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. It's like that's clocking out. Yeah, Miller time. Yep. There's a process. There's it. It as much as there's a process of trying to ramp up and getting ready for the show. There's also always that process of winding down afterwards. Yeah, warming down is a yeah is a big thing in in athletics. Yeah, sure know? is. And yeah. playing drums. You know, I mean, Paul warms down his voice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He was, you know, for years it was just warming up, but then he does a warm down and he's an athlete as well. He's a, uh, a practicing boxer. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's not, he doesn't fight, but he uses it as his workout and keeps he, everybody else in the band in line too. <laughs> I'll take him down. <laughs> Come on, right. Banks. I'll, get, I'll give it to you. Let's go to work, pal. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't know what that is relevant to his, his warm down. But yeah. yeah, just like um, what he does, you know, exercising. In, sure. In by mood of boxing, it's it's it so intense. You just you can't stop. You'll 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 do damage. Yeah. To your body. So okay, all right. Now let's say that uh, you're up and about by like one one thirty. What's the next thing you do? Because sound check is most likely going to be later in the day, got like a around few hours, five-ish or got so. A f- exactly. I got a few hours to kill. What do you do? Coffee. Really good pour-over coffee. You know, someplace where I actually want to sit there for a minute and maybe try to figure out if I want to go to a museum mm-hmm. uh, or an art gallery or an H&M to get some new underwear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know... Uh, Kind of cool. Uh, age and fatherhood will do this, like looking for like really unique toy stores. Yeah, you know something. Finally, bringing something back from somewhere that you know you you had to acquire in that place. You know that you just can't get on the internet, sure, or whatever, um, or just walking around. Just simply to get just moving. just yeah. to get moving and just to look at what's around. You know. Kind of maybe dancing around the forest and going into the trees a little bit, but just to kind of get a feel what's happening, or you know, doing those things that take up the whole day. Going to a museum, yeah. And this is all I can do today. I'm going to just dive in here or park bench. I, I well, I'll say this. I'll know. I know that if I don't get up and get out and about a little bit, it wears me out not to. Yeah, and it, it, you know. it's not good emotionally either. Right. You, you need to. You need. You know, because ultimately, I would love to just be home, and then kind of transport right to the show. Um, so I sit, I could sit there and pine away, or just do what anybody else would do, and just try to like make the best of where you're at. Yeah, take take a look, see what's around. Okay, so we're working our way up to sound check now. Now every band does completely different versions of sound check. Some bands like to get in there and just like. My monitors are working. Everything sounds good. Ten minutes later, we're done. Other groups, man, 
and I'll give you a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was over here with at the Georgia Theater with Adam Deitch from Lettuce. Okay. They were playing over there. He said, man, before we do the interview, I want you to come over to the sound check. The sound check was almost two hours long. Whoa. Because they were actually writing and recording during the sound check. Oh, we right. went back onto the front lounge of the bus and listened to some of it. He wanted us to see what they were doing. Wow. So what kind of sound check do you guys do? It's nowhere near that. Yeah. It's, that would be a nightmare. I would think to so, be the, too. We couldn't, we couldn't write. Yeah. We tried to rehearse a couple of new songs a few times, and just with house crew around and stopping and watching, it just, it just can't get it done. Yeah. Just can't get it done. So um, I think we're pretty neurotic over our personal mixes, which everybody pretty much is. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually what we do is our, uh, ask our sound man, what was the weakest song the night before? And he'll say, it'll be this. It was this, just give me the verse. Or what do you need to hear, Harley? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's always him first. And then once we get that sorted, it, it you know, maybe if we're going to work a new song into the set that we rehearsed, you know, pre-tour, but just let's get it, let's play it, let's get it up to speed. But nothing like never constructing a song. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, but everybody wants to get off the stage as quick as possible. Good. So some of your sound checks might be as short as 15 minutes then. Ideally, yeah. Right, gotcha. Now, for me, the kind of most tenuous or strangest part of a road gig day is that time after sound check before the gig. Yeah, it's awkward. It's awkward, isn't it? Because you've got somewhere normally between three and four hours a right. lot of times, right? What do you do? You know, it has to be timed perfectly. Ideally, it would be great to like shower up and maybe eat while you're in your bathroom. You uh-huh. know, be really... Yeah comfortable mm-hmm. um but man if you miss that 15 minute window i get too i can't relax that much before i'm going to work yeah where i'm about to have to be the watchdog of uh you know rhythmic output in front of a few thousand people mm-hmm. um so what's really important to me i guess mostly is at the end of that post sound check time pre-show time i need to be at the venue an hour the show just to be in that space even if it's in the dressing room and then i could kind of meditate uh-huh. or just kind of zone out so you practice meditation i do i do not very well but i'm working on it i don't think anybody that practices meditation thinks they do it very well right yeah yeah how do we really know that's exactly right, right. <laughs> do, do you have a practice pad or anything back there to warm up sometimes yeah yeah it depends on how i'm feeling mm-hmm. how you know what what if, if i don't feel very strong or it's early in a tour. I don't feel mm-hmm. my stamina is up to speed. Um, you know, a very basic just to get literally yep. the forearm nice and loose. Singles, doubles, paradiddles. A little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Even even if it's just singles, not paying attention. Just to right. have the movement going on. Uh-huh. Um, I, for a while, had a little rolling electronic kit backstage. Um which was fun because it doesn't yeah. sound like a kid, you know, it's just right. kind of, and, um, you know, you could spread out a little more. Yeah. 
you know. So um, I got it. What I got into doing was playing, um, you know, four on the floor at a very high tempo for about ten minutes straight. That'll do it. Yeah, yeah. And it's just it's fun. It's still fun, but it's very aerobic. Yeah, you know, and discipline. You know, yeah. Do a click track, you know, at just to where it's like punk rock uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, just outside of that, that you know, what would be fast tempo for Interpol. Yes. Just in something where, oh man, it's gonna get me right in that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I got about a little, you know. Yeah. And then usually at the end of ten, and then the warm down from that, like by the time I go on stage, it's like I'm playing with feathers, and the songs are slow, and I could just cut right, th- you know. It's just, <laughs> yeah. It's great. Okay, so now we're up to gig time. Okay. Yeah. These days when you guys are headlining, what is a typical show? Hour and a half? Is it close to an hour and a half with Encore? Hour and a half with Encore. Encore. We don't want to we want to give everybody their money's worth, but sure. want them wishing for 30 seconds more. <laughs> gotcha. Now, trying to do that anyway. A cu- couple of questions about mid gig. Okay. Now, uh, I know that you guys you got a pretty good catalog. To pull from now. Yeah, now, okay. it's, now it's six records. Yeah. Six records. And we're going to talk about that, the new record here in a little while also. Okay? Uh, with the variety of music that you have to pull from, do you guys either A, play to any clicks, or use any clicks for references, yes. sequences, anything like that? We used to, we for a while, we had a... <laughs> okay, the guys at Native Instruments in Berlin said, <laughs> oh my God, your playback rig is bigger than Depeche Mode's. <laughs> uh, that sounds like the punchline to a joke it does it? right uh-huh. and that it, to me I was embarrassed because I realized how unnecessary it was yeah and that was kind of at that was like our love to admire the third record and that's where Carlos D just went crazy yeah and he insisted that every keyboard track he laid down was played back live and to where Harley, our sound man, Harley Zinker, who's been with us since day one, would tell him, you know, it's, you're not going to hear it tonight. Nobody's going to hear that wine glass Mellotron sample. Right. It's just, sorry, dude, it's gone. doesn't matter how loud you, like, this is a live venue. This is a live arena. Like, you're not, you're, it's vanity, man. It can't be heard. It can yeah. only be seen, and it's ugly. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and... When, you know, it was kind of funny, you know, he was bragging like, yeah, we have more playback than Depeche Mode. I was like, that's, you know what, you know how ridiculous that is? Depeche Mode are a synth band. Yeah. Okay. And we have more processing power than them. That's stupid. To me, it's just kind of, we're missing the plot here. So it's pared down now from that. There's barely any, um... I think maybe there was maybe a couple songs on the last tour that I insisted on having a click for. Yeah. Um, but some of the songs on the record that we did are without click. Right. And we kind of, I mean, it's been weird, like in the trajectory of this band, in the existence of this band, it's either been like all or nothing. Yeah. You know, it's been like, if we're going to play to a click, it's, it's going to be layered playback like intense, you know, complicated keyboard passages and me just being dead on that thing, not jerking it whatsoever to like, okay, let's be on the click, but let's jerk the click. Right. Kind of do this. Manipulate tight, it. Tight, but like kind of, you uh-huh. know, give it the illusion of a little swag. Right. 
And then to like, let's intentionally not, let's record to tape, no click, no comping, get the take right, or play right. it over. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So- that, and, and recently, getting to that point, then that became, uh, that was dictated by Dave Fridman. Okay. Gotcha. So we're at the gig. We're in the gig right now. Something I want to do before we go to the after show kind of routine yeah. is give us just a quick rundown of what gear you're currently playing, such as drums, cymbals, head sticks. Um, heads are Quarian. You, are, you, are you a fan of Mr. Chris Brady out there? At, do you uh, speak, man, speak what him? a nice dude. He's a sweetheart. He's sweetheart, right? He's I, the greatest guy ever. He's so, man, easy breezy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really like him a lot. And they have a cool selection of heads. They all do different things. I'm really. I've said it on the show several times before. I feel like that as we speak right now, Aquarian is making the best products that they've ever made. And if you can't find something that you like out of their offerings, I, I don't know what's going to please you. Yeah, nothing will. Yeah. Because they could do it, 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 it does it all. It does. Those are reflector heads. Mm hmm. And it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Drums. Um, I was with CNC for a while, uh-huh. uh, but I just signed with Gretsch. Paul Cooper, my brother down in Ridgeland, South Carolina. Yep. And I deal with um Andrew Shreve, who used to be at Peisty. Yeah, that's out in out uh, now, the West Coast. Now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So that is a big part. Of lo- Gretsch, you know, come on, anytime, any place, anywhere. But I was I was good friends with Andrew, and he was at Peisty, mm-hmm. and I was like, wait a minute. I'm at CNC. The guy who's brought me on is gone. Mm-hmm. So it's not like uh, I'm not needy. I don't need them to call me or keep track of me or anything. But the guy, so I really, and I'm playing drums that are, you know, Gretsch clones. They're like unabashed. These are our Gretsch style. Because these, this wood and this wood layered with this wood. And this is the bearing edge on, you know, it's like Gretsch copies. And I was like, well, okay, my guy's gone. I'm playing Gretsch copies. I love Andrew, like we're friends, and they're Gretsch. <laughs> so it, without disparaging an ounce to what CNC does, actually, it's, you know, I'll still use, I won't sell my CNC drums. Right. I'll still use them. You know, it's, a, it's um, it just didn't make sense. Yeah. You know? Let me tell you, you don't have to sell me or any of the listeners on Gretsch, man. I, that's what I've been playing since 1989. I've go. got, I've got uh, right now five sets of USA Customs ah, that I use. There you are, go. You know, some in storage, some you know in the studio, that that sort of stuff. It's man, I mean, Amazing. you don't don't need to say. Have you been down to the factory down in Ridgeland? I haven't. Let's talk. Let's talk after the show. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I man. bet I can yeah. only imagine. Uh, this new tour that you guys are going on. Are you going to be playing the USA Customs or the Broadcasters? Broadcasters. Broadcasters. All right. Yeah. Unless, unless I decide not to bring Kit overseas uh-huh. and just. Uh, so, if I have to play U- USA Custom, then so be it. Oh, so be it, man. I know. Wow. What, what a step. What a step down. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's awful. Wow. God. Yeah. Who who do I who do I write to? I know. Um, the cool thing that Gretsch does with their endorses is that they supply the rental houses with kits that are just for the artists. Oh, that's nice. 
That's so really nice. they remain kind of unbeaten. You know, the rental yeah. the drum kit could be a nightmare. You know, just just another side note. About, we're sitting here talking about the, the laurels of Gretsch, like, like they need any more laurels. But right. let me tell you, another thing about those damn drums, man, everybody makes great drums, but there is an intangible about those drums that record, to me, unlike anything else, man. I mean, the, the they, record... Phenomenal... Phenomenal recording. I, I I still have simple room recording that I did mm-hmm. with stereo microphone at post recording drum tracks for our love to admire. So this mm-hmm. is going back to two thousand five or six, and um, still some of the best sounding drums. And it was sad that it it wasn't recorded to you know, right. And but just you know, kind of just a uh, you know recording a random workout. It's like those toms were th- perfectly pitched and thunderous. Yeah, amazing. Had just such a beautiful release, like boom. Mm-hmm. You know, just great cutoff. There's also something about the feel. Uh, there's a certain feel oh, when you play. When Greg's you strike drums. those drums, there's yeah. something about. Doesn't it. matter what head you have on it. Yeah, it's the bearing edge, man. Mm-hmm. It's how the head head to uh, edge contact. Yeah, isn't it? And, and also I think it has something to do on the USA Customs with the diecast hoops. You know, there's diecast oh, hoops. Oh, yeah, top so and can't bottom. forget about those crazy yeah. hoops. Yeah. yeah, man. There's something about those the intangible of those different things that you're talking about, man. That's just it's it's Gretsch all the way through. It's, it's beautiful hard. physics, right? Yeah, it's hard to emulate that, man. Yeah, it's a mm-hmm. it's a beautiful formula, and you know the kind of, the tension and weight and all that, mm-hmm. and that and and well, I mean, while we're at it, the gray primer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not only yeah. aesthetically pleasing, but there's something to the primer that they use. Yeah, uh-huh. it's like the final little, you know, the the thing that you wouldn't think would be intrinsic to a tone, but yeah. It's it's the little when you get a whole bunch of little things together they add up to a big thing. That's right. You know? So symbols, what are you what are you playing these days? Dream. Interesting, man. So yeah. now you the, traditionally known for thinner, darker symbols, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Back to uh, a ride ping. Yeah. Man. Moon ride. Moon ride. Moon ride. Oh man. What size? Uh, either twenty or twenty-two. Gotcha. Um, depending on what you know, what the track is or whatever. Right. But uh, man, I love symbols that don't give in to the wash. Right. You Something know, you can lay into, but you can still can get let, the you ping. Still, yeah, you could. I love when it's underneath the ping. Mm-hmm. So okay, you know that it's being excited. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm at the point now where if I want total wash, I'll play with a, a big thin crash symbol. Right. I'll ride on the edge of that for that. I'm just at that point. Yeah. And I, you know, a bad habit that I had as a as a younger drummer, uh, still with an Interpol like at the beginning of our career was, I, it was just lean. I would get lazy and like lean on the wash. Right. If I just was didn't feel the energy, and it's like, um, so there's a bad connotation. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where stylistically, you know, when it works, there's like nothing like it. Right, it creates that bed of sound. It's that's bad. Underneath. It's it's excitement. Uh-huh. You know, it's like in synthesis, how you know when you excite the signal, you know, there's a certain thing that happens. You know, it's just very tingly and, you know, all that good thing, man. It it it's like it's our version of a pad, distorted pad, if you will. Yeah, okay, sustained. Yeah, and it's that's a good that's a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and when it's perfect, it's great. But you know, lately I've just been like, I am at, I'm on a, playing a ride cymbal with a thick wooden stick. You know, it should sound like a ride cymbal. God damn it. Yeah. You know. Now while we're on it, sticks. What are you using? Big Firth. Okay. Size? Five B. Okay. Five A. Man, I'm dyslexic. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Thinner. It's a thinner ones. They'd be the five A. Five A's. Yeah. What it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Wood tip. White. Right on. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah, painted white. Just what? Just because they said they have them. So just I said, because. I'll take them. <laughs> and, you know, everybody would think that Interpol guy is going to take the black sticks. Because you think so, I'm doing white. <laughs> so, Sam, now, got some exciting stuff coming up. Got the new album that's getting ready to drop in a few months, right? Yeah, in uh, August something. <laughs> <laughs> Title. Marauder. Marauder, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, uh, we all know the business. Once the album comes out, you gotta support it. Oh yeah, that. Well, tell us about yeah. Tell us about where you're gonna be over the next few months because th- this this show is gonna post in early June. In early June. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, how early? Because yeah, like the f- oh, probably the fourth. Okay. Well, good. Listen <laughs> to the podcast and <laughs> yeah. then watch us on Colbert. Oh, right on. And that, what, what day is that on the 4th? On the 4th, yeah. Right on. Boy, man, we couldn't have planned this better. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Perfect, perfect. Okay. So, and you then, know, the label always wants it to make sense, like what you're promoting. Can't waste an ounce. Yeah. Well, here we go. We're there we go. Perfect timing, my friend. Okay, now, next thing. All right, you guys are going to do a series of European dates in yeah. June, right? In June, um, some festival shows um some headlining shows but ultimately leading up to uh opening up for the cure for their hyde park show commemorating 40 years incredible 40 years mm-hmm. you just think that it used to be only the rolling stones would you know kind of uh occupy that shelf of like four mm-hmm. decades and now it's the definitive like alt rock icon yeah, I mean, I mean, for he, Robert Smith, the guy with the hair and the eyeliner, lipstick, and, and the lipstick and the unique voice, mm-hmm. and quite a shredding guitar player. No, oh no, <laughs> seriously. Oh yeah, I had. Who would have known that? Oh man, he <laughs> yeah he can, and it's amazing because he he does it. You don't realize it happened because he does it within the context of a Cure song. Okay. Live yeah. and it's just like he just did, he he alludes to. I mean, it's a Schechter guitar too. You would, and it's just like man, that guy. He's, the the best thing we toured with them in two thousand four, uh-huh. and they did like a touring festival called the Curiosa Festival. And there was a B stage, and it was uh, the Rapture, Mogwai, Interpol, the Cure on one stage, and a bunch of other bands on the other. And, um, it, it, you know, getting to know him, hanging out with him a little bit, and, like, after shows, th- his musical selections were pretty heavy. You know, just not what you'd expect. In fact, they're listening to Mahler 3. <laughs> okay, it's just like he loves Smashing yeah. Pumpkins. Okay. He, yeah. I remember him just blaring Gish. Uh-huh. And, and uh, oh, just always making, if other people were DJing, just always leaning over and appreciating... Something you wouldn't think 
than Mr. Smith would like. Right. You know, and it just, you know, just really learn your lesson. Like, no, no more, you know, book cover judging. Stop it. You know, because the surprises are amazing. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? So when, you know, Robert Smith rocks, he's like a goat-throwing rocker. <laughs> and, yeah. and he plays golf and poker like nobody's business. Don't play poker with Robert Smith, right? Fuck that, you'll lose your money. Yeah. Yeah. So that people say that this podcast gives no practical advice. There's your practical advice. Don't play poker with Robert Smith. Yes. Right? Yep. So now, Sam, I don't, I, I don't know if you know dates yet or exact ranges of time. When does the North American tour? We're, we'll be embarking on select North American dates right. in September, mid-September sometime, uh-huh. which will go through until uh, Christmas. Right. Uh, we'll be bouncing around the states and you know the Western world. Gotcha. Uh, and then you know next year, you know o nineteen, it's on. It's on. Yeah. So you know we usually, if things go well, you know every record we put out, you know being an American band, we usually try to hit this, you know do the rounds like two or three times. Sure. So we'll see what happens. But you know, um, we'll be we'll be available. <laughs> for bookings call. that's right <laughs> right yeah and and everybody can see these dates at interpolnyc.com yeah correct? i believe i believe so yes yeah how do i know your website and you don't <laughs> no i know the website no, no, yeah. as to what information you'll right. find yeah right got, gotcha it's yeah. about to be revamped i believe okay right after the podcast good Around deal that time yeah good deal all right well hopefully you'll be coming through atlanta doing one of our fine venues somewhere you know we've always played the tabernacle man love it swear to god one of the best venues to play at in the world I be- i'm with you it is a fantastic venue it's man. fun to play and it's fun to hang out on afterwards yeah. yeah absolutely yeah so it doesn't seem like it sam but we've been going for over two hours man uh man, my partner, my woman in there. <laughs> who, okay, first of all, <laughs> when I was discussing with her, I, it, we have a very interesting relationship. This is the first like not. Okay, my ex-wife, my child's mother, was a fashion photographer. Is a fashion photographer. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of overlap. Like she kind of understood the travel aspect, mm-hmm. um, and how it could be grueling, and she understood the fun of it. Yeah. You know, and she ran it, you know, she knew a lot of people and music and she photographed a lot of bands and actors. So there was still, we didn't do exactly the same thing, but she had an appreciation. There was an understanding, a little bit of a parallel. Um, And she traveled the world a lot. Now, (laughs) my lovely woman, Lee, is, uh, could give a shit. (laughs) So we could be out here all day. She's just, uh, and it's just like, you know, oh, Y'all be in there talking about music and drums. I don't have to come in there for any reason, do I? You you don't need anything from me at all? And she's like, no, 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 not at all. She's like, good, you could stay in there as long as you... <laughs> good deal. And so it's it's kind of interesting to be with someone who is definitely has creative leanings. She's an excellent... She will not admit it, but she's an excellent artist. Mm-hmm. I mean... There's people who can paint, and there's people who can paint, and she's got something, and sh- and and she's almost like has like this uh, 
level of humility that's like equal to like Catholicism. Mm-hmm. She does mm-hmm. not brag, about, and, and even when she has the right to, you know, she just does not brag about anything. She does it for purpose. She's very pragmatic. Yeah, and so it's funny to where uh, there is this like disconnection. Like there ain't no rock star living here. You know what I mean? Sure. Like she she uh she respects the working musician. That's about that you really can't ask for anything more than that. You know what? Cuz when they love the rock star, you're screwed. That's man, well said. Right? Well said. Because here we are, I mean, mm-hmm. we we have a a common friend mm-hmm. and that's why I'm sure you asked him yes. and then I obviously positively, you know, gave a positive reply cuz mm-hmm. Patrick Ferguson is Salt of the earth, and and he will love hearing his name. On oh, he Patrick Ferguson. <laughs> hey, Patrick Ferguson. <laughs> uh, I he told, has a sweet voice too. He, you know? he does. I yeah. promised him that I would uh, text him as soon as we got finished to tell him how it went. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That love that guy. Yeah. Don't get to see him enough, but think about him all the time. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a, he is. He's he's a, a warm dude. soul. Yes, he is. Um, but yeah, you know, like you you, you end up with people who uh, buy into the myth. You know, and either uh, become greatly disappointed at how normal you are, mm-hmm. or want the next dude. Yeah, that hits the next level of rock star. Yeah, so or just like you know, I want to go taste that one. Yeah, I mean, guys do it too. You know, I mean, it's just a thing. You know, when you're, you know, fall in love with the extension and not the person, right. then it's not going to last. Yeah, and you know, and then there's other relationships too where it does run too tight of a parallel. So there ends up being not competition for success or one upping each other, but competition for time Yeah, to do those endeavors and, you know, being married to someone who, you know, in terms of the time that it took to express herself creatively conflicted with mine Mm -hmm. and then, well, who, who's right? Who's, you know, well, I was first. Well, no, I think I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's just so it becomes like a really you become battling over. It becomes really awfully egotistical, and you lose the plot. And finally, just being with someone who likes to, you know, I work. She likes the fact that I'm successful and that I work, but she don't care about anything else. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It's also got to be kind of nice, also mm-hmm. that knowing coming into it what you do i'm sure and this is no reflection on you sam you're sure. a wonderful guy as your wikipedia says you're easily the most f- friendly person in interpol but she's got to enjoy the times also that she knows when you're going to be gone for a little while see that's that's my whole thing uh-huh. i'm like okay really here's what you get if i i am in monogamous i'm like i either traditionally have played the field only to run into someone's arms and beg them not to let me go. Yeah. Like I would have fun getting there, but ultimately I don't, I never wanted to date too many people for too long. I just want to, where is my partner? Yeah. Old fashioned that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the point I was going to make? <laughs> about, about possibly giving her some time Oh, that you're oh, going to okay. be gone for a few exactly. weeks. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, here's the thing. Like, what more could you want with having monogamous, but autonomous relationship? Right. Knowing that yeah. you are, you could, if you need the security of knowing that you have a mate who's going to be faithful to you, 
if if you want that or if it's cool for you know we got polyamoric excited. <laughs> yeah. um that's cool but you know still those people have their partners right still multiple sex partners or not they have their mate partner and you know i'm pretty monogamous like just one one person um but i enjoy being away you know i've turned that frown upside down like sure. there's a part of it like at the at the onset where i have no choice i have to be here so all the things that i cannot do at home i get to do without hurting anybody's feelings or ignoring anyone yeah. my child included sure you know and to say hey partner on the other side you have the same thing like you have my trust you have my faith and now here's my freedom too right you get to experience it on this side just out of curiosity on longer uh, tours. Yeah. Do you ever fly her out? Absolutely. Yeah. That's a must. Yeah. It, you know, we don't want that autonomy to go too long now. I <laughs> gotcha. Because, gotcha. you know, never mind, you know, finding another mate. You don't want to be alone. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, especially my woman. Yeah. <laughs> Lee would just be like, oh, no, man, you've been gone way too long, Sam. I can't do her accent very well. She's she's local then. Oh man, she's from Valdosta. Oh okay, that's man. Where we're at right now is like New York City compared to Valdosta. Oh yeah, all <laughs> right. Yeah, no, she's. But you know, still, she's a, she's a Southern oddball. Yeah, you know, you can't. You think you might be able to pick her out. You right. know, or describe her from. You know, there's definitely we all have every region has a stereotype and. You know, aside from her nice southern, slow Georgia draw, mm-hmm. she's an enigma. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the perfect way to lead into something that we do on this show that is often imitated but never duplicated. All right. I do a little quick round of questions that we like to call the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast Rorschach Test. Wow. Yeah, and you're going to be a part of it, All Sam. right, yeah, I'm here. So what I've got here is I've got a series of 20 short questions that I'm going to ask you. I don't want you to think about this too much. As soon as I give you the question, right off the top of your head, tell me what you feel. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. All right, here we go. Drum heads, single ply or double ply? Single. What is your favorite country to tour? Holland. Live performance preference with a click, with a sequence, or with nothing? Oh, nothing. PC or Mac? Mac. What's your go to snare drum if you could only have one? Eplinger. I've got one of those too. Yeah. I've got one too. You see? Yeah. Up all night or up at the crack of dawn? kind of answered this one yeah i did uh, yeah i've been doing crack of dawn these days because it's just like being up all night bonham or moon bonham i love keith moon too but bonham text or phone call text in-ear monitors or wedges wedges what's your favorite hobby i don't believe in hobbies good answer What is I just your- choose to suck at everything I do. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite drum sound on record? Now, not necessarily just yours, but just... Just 
all around. All around. Yeah, John Bonham, man. It's uh God. Right up into right I mean, you could pick if you're just talking about sound, I mean, pick any record. Mm-hmm. Any phase of their career, but the later it got, man, it turned it became more than just that, you know, ambient like, mm-hmm. you know, he only wanted one microphone. Right. You know, the whole thing, like, you know, no no engineer is gonna control me dynamically. Right. So the adage is they convinced him to use three. When they started adding some closer mics too, you know, it you heard a different, a little bit different side of him, you know, with the more direct, fatter sound. Like, um, okay, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you right now. Wait. Rover. Okay. That's my favorite bottom sound. It goes from flat mm-hmm. and dry and fat. And then as soon as they kick into that chorus on the drum fill, the one of the drum fill, bop, boom, boom, bop, boom, boom, bop, room mm-hmm. mics come in. Yeah. It's like, wow. So you still have that, you know, familiar John Bonnet, the bombast of room mics, but there's that drier. It's like, you know, late 70s. Yeah. Still playing, you know, kind of tapped into that drier, more round sound. Good call. So yeah, that's it. Good call. Yeah. Ballpark figure. How many symbols do you own? About a hundred. Sports. You love them or hate them? <sighs> I love hate them. <laughs> <laughs> so, sounds like you have a favorite team that might be suffering. I, you know, uh, I don't know. I never up on a season, particular, but um, I don't know. There's, you know, so I'm not the biggest sport fan, but then one day I was talking about how I am not a football fan and was talking about you know, the game. And if people were saying, well, wait, what do you mean you don't like it? What do you, you know the rules of the game. Like, what do you, and I was like, I don't know how I know. Well, now, <laughs> being originally from Philly, do you have any loyalties to like Eagles, Flyers, There Phillies? is all the Sixers, everything. Yeah, uh-huh. There is, just from childhood, and at, luckily at the age I'm at and the time I was a kid, they were killing it. All yeah. those teams there was one year in the 70s, or maybe like around 1980, 79, 80, where every team made its playoff, the equivalent of its playoff game. Yeah. So the baseball team made it to the pennant or the playoffs. It wasn't the pennant game. The pennant game is within each league, right? Right, yeah, within the National League. Right, the so they, League. you know, Philly was either winning the pennant uh-huh. or getting to the playoffs, Um you know, same with the Flyers, or they were winning the games, oh, the, uh, the, se- the series, the final. And at that time, the Super Flyers were just beating the hell out of everybody, too, oh, man. literally. Broad Street Bullies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My aunt, my mother's sister, yeah. was the big hockey fan. Yeah, yeah. So whether you liked it or not, you're going to her house, and the Flyers were on. That's you're what you're watching. The flyers. Yeah. I didn't mind, but, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of our women, women folk yeah. were just like, no (laughs) practicing drums i do it every day or what the hell is that concept what the hell is that concept good enough coffee or tea coffee if you were not a pro drummer what vocation would you pick if i wasn't a pro drummer um i'd be a professional drum technician all right probably yeah what's your favorite major band to open for to open for well we haven't done it that much you know the cure was great uh-huh. we did some actually people were on the fence 
um, when we did this. Um, and I actually, we all actually had the best time of our lives was opening for you too. Yeah. You know, a lot of fans were like, why are you doing that? And it's like, because I don't listen to my mom anymore. I do what I want. <laughs> oh, and it doesn't get really any bigger than that. And it's just like, well, because I don't want to just play for you my whole life, young lady. Yeah. I remember a girl, it was a young girl giving me hell. Uh-huh. For not speaking French like the other guys. And why are you playing with you two? I don't understand. <laughs> and you don't speak French. I don't want to talk to you no more. <laughs> um, you two, yeah. Fiction or nonfiction? It depends. Really, it's kind of, that's a hard one for me just to go, right now I'm reading nonfiction, so just go nonfiction. Got it. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside, or darling, I love you, give me Park Avenue. Fuck you, New York City. <laughs> Fuck you, but I love, I love you though. <laughs> Overall mood of Interpol. Surprisingly upbeat, or the anticipated stoic gloom and doom. That's surprisingly upbeat. That's what I get. With a little time. sprinkle of that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I got a couple extra credit questions for you here. Shoot. Okay. Social media. Useful tool or the root of all evil? That's the root of all evil, man. People aren't talking to each other anymore. Mm-hmm. And then this one might take a little bit of thought here. What movie should have Interpol provided the soundtrack to. The cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Oh, wow, man. Okay. That's a dark movie, dude. Sure, it's one of my favorite. Yeah. I I thought that would would have been cool. Mr. Fogarino, you passed the test. Oh. I was a little worried about you, man, but you did great. Cool. Man, Sam, is there anything else you want to say to these folks? Thanks. Oh, man, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really cool. It's great. Oh, I I had a blast, man. It's been one of my favorite interviews. Cool, yeah, this is really, I forgot what we were doing in a good way. That's that's, That's that's the idea, right? It's a conversation. We're just talking. We're hanging out. It's good. The concept of this show from the get-go has just been guys hanging out at the drum shop. That's cool. Right? It's cool. Yeah. You know, there's something I need to talk about, though. Yeah, let's do it. Um. You know, I, I was reading, what was I reading? I was on my Flipboard, kind of just on my phone, mm-hmm. and it, I found this article, and Nick Mason from Pink Floyd uh, put together a trio and played some early Pink Floyd songs. And they did it with, he did it with a couple side guys that either played with Pink Floyd Live, or I think one guy actually was like a side man for David Gilmore at one time, so it was kind of relative to the core of Pink Floyd. So automatically, this article is deprecating towards drummers and saying that, you know, really do you, it's like, you know, let's be truthful. You don't want to hear a solo record from a drummer. Sorry, Ringo. And it's like, wait a minute. Okay. Why do journalists and other musicians assume that first day drummer, only a drummer? Okay, now, today, like I read that last night, and today I um, was going through some 12-inch singles I have, and there's a track called Mustafa Dance, which is the instrumental version of Rock the Casbah by The Clash. Essentially, what you hear is every contribution that Topper Hedden 
gave to the song, which is the drums, the bass, and the piano. He wrote the song. He wrote their biggest charting hit. And he was just simply content to be the drummer in a band. But he's a musician. He wrote music. Bill Berry wrote Losing My Religion. Mm-hmm. And from what Michael Stipe says, at least he wrote a big part of it. Yeah. And so, but once you have sticks in your hands, like the, it's like, you know, as a joke, you know, between drummers and, and other musician friends on the inside, that it's fine. That's our little, little vernacular that we play with. But like, you know, people are, pe- you know, people are people. And just to make an assumption that like the drummer is really less than all by virtue, you know, some, some days I just don't care, but some days it's like, Hey, asshole who wrote this article Go listen to what Topper did when you were still sucking your thumb, right? Mm-hmm. And before, oh, did, have you written that novel yet? By the way, journalist, <laughs> you know you are okay. Yeah. You are. Let's face it. You are not only are you not a drummer. You're left to criticize one. That's pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, wait a minute. This man like wrote a big part of what the class are known for, and well doesn't really scream for the credit, you know, and never really receives it at the same time. You know, it's just yeah. that whole, like, just kind of, um, we uh, have these learned, you know, notions of, you know, the context of a band and, you know, what the singer should be or who the singer is, you know, either for the better or for worse. But, like, really what it comes down to is what gets my good. It's just, just, it's just a form of discrimination. It's not. It's not hurtful. Yeah. Like a lot of things are going on in the world. Right. Not as bad. We're, I'm not crying in that way at all. Like I'm not being wronged, and Topper Hedden or Nick Mason are not being wronged. It's just a little, kind of a social disgrace. You know, I can't remember who said this, and, and I'll have to paraphrase it also. But something that lends to that notion is there has to be some sort of a subliminal bias because also 99% of the time we're at the back of the stage also. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's weird how, like, it, it's so important, but it kind of gets just, like, pushed off to mm-hmm. the side or to the rear. And, you know, what kind of gets me, it, uh, the worst thing I ever hear is, man, we couldn't see you. Yeah. You sounded so good, but we couldn't see you. And it's like, you know, ego aside, um, if there's not a drummer on stage, there better be some whole hell of a lot of other movement because it's going to be a boring right. gig. So if it's a track band or an R&B band, there better be a lot of dancing going on to fill up that space. Yeah. Because in the simplest of, of uh, settings, like a drummer is just, is there's movement going on. It's not this, you know, mm-hmm. very, you know, guitar play. It's kind of cool, and there could be a lot of energy there, but you really, it's not a visceral thing. Right. Like drums, it's impact. It is, yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people realize when it's not there, oh, God, it's not there. <laughs> Sam, so, man, thank you so much. You're very man. welcome. It's been an absolute blast. Cool. I All had right. a good time. All right, man. Say goodbye to the good folks out in Drummer's Groovecast Nation. Goodbye, good folks out in Drummer's Groovecast Nation. All right.
<laughs> goodbye, good folks, out in Drummer's Groovecast Nation. Good enough. That's better. Well, thanks for sticking with us. That was a long one. I totally realize that. Um, you folks who've listened to the show before realize that sometimes when we get into these uh, two-plus-hour podcasts that I will split them up into two separate episodes. But this is one of those that I think flowed so well and had such good content, and it made a good, clear, single statement that I thought, why not go ahead and release it in one big Joe Rogan-esque style podcast? I hope you find it uh, worthwhile. I know that our visiting guests who are the Interpol fans will really love it, but I also believe that our regular listeners will appreciate uh, this podcast and appreciate what Sam had to say, just getting a really good insight into what he's about, where he now lives, what he's been through, and really what it's like being in Interpol. Um, Plus... Sam just discussed some things that I've never either read before in any print media or heard him discuss before in any sort of interview or any type of video or audio media. And then the listening to in the real-time analysis and explanation of Obstacle 1 is something that I've never heard done before. And I really think that turned out well. I think that is the gem of this podcast. Um, that sort of segment was something that just came to me a day or two before we did the show, and I sprung it on Sam when we were setting up, and he was like, man, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. So, again, tip of the cap to Sam Fogarino for putting up with my little dalliance with Obstacle 1. Please visit the show notes to this podcast, and there you'll find some links where you can follow Sam and Interpol. These guys have a new CD that's dropping in August. It's called Marauder. And, of course, an extensive tour will follow. So make sure you go out and see Interpol when they come to a town near you. And then if you see Sam, make sure you tell him you heard our show. He'll get a real kick out of it because, again, true to his Wikipedia page, he is a very lighthearted and easily approachable guy. Lastly, Please let us know how you like this show. We love it when our listeners correspond with us. Visit our website, drummersweeklygroovecast.com. There you can find everything DWG. Every one of our episodes are there. All of our videos are there. Our links to social media are available as well. You can manage your subscription. And, of course, there's a contact form where you can email us to let us know how you feel about the show or make suggestions for further shows. Do us a favor, share this podcast with your friends, send them links through emails, tag us in social media, share that with your friends as well, or just share our social media uh, posts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of the usual suspects. And then finally, if you subscribe through iTunes or if you're an iPhone user, please leave us a quick review. Give us five stars if you really enjoyed the show. And I've discovered from some friends who have iPhones just how easy that is. If you open up your podcast app in iPhones and search uh, on an iPhone and search the show, the show will come up and there's an easy little link just to click the five stars. It's so easy and we appreciate it so much and it helps us reach a wider listening audience. As we leave you, underneath my inane ramblings, you're hearing a track that Sam referred to in the show It's Led Zeppelin's The Rover. It's a tune that we were talking about, some production aspects, and, of course, Bonham. 
And so I thought that would be a nice little callback, as we say in this business called show, that would tie the entire show together. So as we leave you, you're hearing Led Zeppelin the Rover. All right, thanks again so much. We appreciate your listenership. We'll see you every Monday with brand new episodes, every first and third Thursday with Countability Thursdays. See you soon. Bye-bye. From the shambles of the